SAP's move into the mid-market, the role of user experience in digital transformation, and the importance of choosing the right implementation partner. Those are just a few of the topics we're going to cover today in episode number 145 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting and also your host here today. Third Stage Consulting is an independent and technology agnostic consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. And this podcast, Transformation Ground Control, covers everything you need to know about digital transformation strategy, including the people, process, and technology components of transformation. So thank you for being here today. We've got a great show lined up for you today. We've got a lot of different guests and topics we're going to cover here today. Uh, we're going to get into some audience questions, first of all, to, to start off. So I'm going to take some questions that we've received in the last few days here on social media. We'll take those questions and answer those for you here today. And then later in the show, uh, right after the opening segment with the audience Q&A, we're going to get into some hot topics. We're going to talk about uh, SAP's growth in the mid-market and some of the strategies and results so far from SAP's push sort of downstream into, into the mid-market. As you, you may know, SAP typically focuses on larger organizations historically, and uh, they have made a concerted effort and a strategic effort to focus more on the mid-market. So we're going to talk a little bit about SAP's moves in that area. And then we're also going to talk about uh, balancing profit and purpose with your digital transformation. And we have a case study here from uh, the Dutch Netherlands, or I'm sorry, not the Dutch Netherlands, the Dutch Lottery uh, in the Netherlands. Um, they're going to be, uh, we're going to be talking about the uh, Dutch lotteries efforts in, uh, in their digital transformation efforts and making sure that they are not only measuring success and business value, but also um, addressing some of the purpose-based metrics that a lot of organizations uh, tend, to, tend to forget about, but is becoming more and more important in today's society. And then finally, we're going to have uh, our first guest, or I shouldn't say finally, actually our next guest, our first guest on the show will be uh, Noon from Infor. Uh, Noonzio is his name, and he's going to be on the show talking about the role of user experience and design in digital transformation. And Noon is the head of design for Infor, which is a big ERP software vendor. So he's going to be on the show sort of uh, bringing some pretty complex user experience and user design topics and bringing it down to earth for people like me to understand, some some lay people to understand. So this will be a, a great conversation and something we've never really talked about on this podcast before. So that'll be a, a great conversation that I look forward to. And then we're also going to, uh, finally, in the show, our last guest will be uh, Amanda Patton and Kyler Cheatham uh, from the Third Stage Consulting team. They're going to be on the show talking about the things to consider as you evaluate potential implementation partners. So we tend to talk on this show and we as consultants oftentimes will focus on the functionality and the fit of a technology product itself and whether or not that's the right fit for an organization. But it's just as important to also look at the implementation partner 
and the implementation team that you're assembling and making sure that you find the right outside resources that are going to be the most successful in helping you through your digital transformation. So we look forward to that uh, conversation later in the show with Amanda and Kyler. But before we get to our guests later in the show, let's talk about some of this this audience Q&A that uh, we have from our from our audience here today. I want to um, get get to some of this here today, some of these great questions we've, we've gotten from the audience. Um, first of all, there's a question on my YouTube video. On my YouTube channel, there is a video where I talk about business process mining, what it is, and, and sort of an intro to business process mining. And there's a question that came up on that video here in the last few days. Um, this question is, would this capability not depend on processes being executed in a single or integrated system? Most of my clients, as is, include offline activities, email spreadsheets, etc. Getting them into a system for the end-to-end workflow is the first challenge. And those systems include the ability to configure measurement points. So the question here is really, you know, how do you, maybe I'll sort of reframe or try to rephrase the questions uh, mainly so that I can answer it a little bit easier. Um, but that is, how do you how do you take that as is process that includes offline activities like emails and spreadsheets? How do you take those offline activities and look at a consolidated, integrated, end-to-end business process view, which is what business process mining does? So for those of you that don't know, and maybe just to simplify or summarize what business process mining is, business process mining tools are typically web-based tools that will go into other web-based enterprise applications, and it will measure how long transactions are taking, um, how long a process is taking, where the bottlenecks are, what the different variations in the process are. So it's really tracking the current state as it really is, not as intended, not as designed, but how it's really being used by end users. But to this person's point, uh, business process mining only works when you've got enterprise technology that's sort of online, that's being used by um, people um, online in a system. So in other words, if they're doing manual processes on their spreadsheet or um, in their email or whatever the case may be, business process mining will not necessarily capture that. So when you're doing the as-is assessment um, and you're analyzing the current state processes, that's where you have to do a little bit more qualitative digging to augment the business process mining. And that is a potential deficiency, I suppose you could call it, of business process mining, um, although I don't know how you address that deficiency um, or if there's a way to do that. Um, when people are working outside of a system, business process mining is not going to be able to capture that information or the as-is processes. So that's where you really have to qualitatively dig in and understand and, and do some more qualitative focused interviews and discussions with people to understand what they're doing and how much time they're spending and where they're going outside the system. Um, so while business process mining can provide a good starting point in cases like that, it, it's going to have to get augmented by some additional follow-up conversations and analysis of what are those business processes that are happening outside of a system. The good news is when you look to the future state and you move towards a more web-based and more modern enterprise technology that is online and presumably more of your business processes will be performed online in a system in a repeatable way, business process mining has a ton of business value there because it can actually measure that stuff. So it's going to be able to capture that. But to this person's point, it's not going to capture those those black market systems, I'll, I'll call it. Uh, that's that's a term that I use sometimes to describe those those systems that are off the grid. They're, they're systems that aren't necessarily endorsed by or supported by the organization, but it's a tool that a person decides to use to make their job easier. It could be a spreadsheet. It could be a manual process, an email. It could be another app that they download to help them do whatever their job is. So, you know, being able to capture that and understand that outside the realm of business process management or business process mining, I should say, 
is really important. So I think that's that's a really important point. You don't want to use business process mining as a silver bullet because it's not going to necessarily capture all of your business processes or analyze all of your business processes for you, but it certainly gives you a really solid start, especially in cases where you are using a, a centralized or a, a, a enterprise-wide technology that can be measured with business process mining. And then going forward, like I said, in the future, future state technologies generally are going to lend themselves better to business process mining, which is great for optimization and making sure you're getting the most business value out of your your enterprise technologies too. So great question related to business process mining um, from from the uh, team member that, that asked that and I appreciate the audience member that, that did ask that. Another question here is from one of my TikTok videos. I, I posted a brief um, a brief video that I think was actually a clip from this podcast, if I remember correctly. And it was a clip from a few episodes ago where a qu- another question came up from, there was a comment from a, a person uh, that was listening in in the podcast and they made a comment that, uh, they made a comment that they thought that I was wrong to say that NetSuite was not flexible or not as flexible as other ERP systems in the marketplace. Uh, while I do stand by that comment, I think there are other systems that are more flexible than NetSuite. Not saying it's a bad thing. NetSuite, you know, has its strengths, and sometimes organizations shouldn't have as much flexibility as they get because of that flexibility can lead to a lot of problems, and that's a topic for a whole other conversation. But flexibility sometimes can be a bad thing, and there is a dark side to it. So I'm not using flexibility as a positive or negative term. It's just more of a factual term of, of you know, depending on what what it is you're looking for. Um, but this person is asking as a follow-up to that, though, this is from TikTok, the person asked, what system would you compare NetSuite to in an evaluation? And that's a great question because, uh, you know, NetSuite's done a really good job of carving out a, a pretty strong niche in the market, and especially in the small and mid-market where you've got a lot of organizations that have grown quickly, uh, they've outgrown QuickBooks or whatever their basic accounting software is, and now they're looking for sort of their first real ERP system that doesn't just do accounting and finance like a QuickBooks, but can also do additional stuff like inventory management and distribution and customer order processing, things of that nature, warehouse management, even some light manufacturing potentially. So a lot of different functions that organizations are sort of growing into and needing that goes beyond their legacy accounting and finance software. And NetSuite is a great option for for small and mid-market companies. I think it is one that that is on the short list very frequently with our small and mid-market client base, um, largely because they've built the solution for that segment. And ever since Oracle purchased it close to a decade ago, ever since Oracle acquired NetSuite, um, I think they've done a, a really good job from a sales perspective of pushing even deeper into the mid-market. Um, I would argue in some cases, maybe they're doing too good of a job because they're pushing into areas that they may not, that maybe they shouldn't be pushing into. Um, industry-wise and in situational types of situations. But setting that aside for a moment, they've done a good job of carving out that niche. Having said that, NetSuite is not the only option in the marketplace. And we're not affiliated. My company is not affiliated with NetSuite, as, as you probably know. We're not affiliated with any software vendors, for that matter. But I would say that NetSuite um, is one option. Another option that a lot of mid-sized companies will look at um, are going to be products like um SAP has some has some mid market products, and we're going to come back to to SAP's uh, movement in the mid market uh, after a break in our in our part two of our opening segment here. When we get to the hot topics, so stick around for that if you're interested in this. But you have SAP Business by Design and SAP Business One, which are two um, sort of small and mid market 
offerings that SAP is providing. But SAP is also taking S4 HANA, and they're, they have a SAP Grow initiative, which is meant to uh, increase adoption of S4 HANA Cloud in the mid-market. So they're sort of introducing a third option for, for companies in the mid-market that might want uh, one of their solutions. Um, another even more common one that we see a lot with NetSuite or companies that are evaluating NetSuite is, is Microsoft um, D365. They have there's two different versions of D365. You have the finance and operations, which is more for the larger enterprises, but then you also have Business Central, which is more for the small and mid-market. And Business Central, I would put sort of right on par with NetSuite as far as you know functionality and focus on the mid-market. So that's another one that, um, in addition to NetSuite and SAP Business One, Business by Design, you also have Microsoft Business Central, which is another uh, good option. And then if you're in the manufacturing space, uh, or if you're in the manufacturing distribution space, I should say, there's a lot of other sort of niche options that target um, mid-market manufacturing distribution types of organizations. So, for example, you have products like Epicor, uh, Decom, Acumatica. Those are just a few examples of more targeted, industry-focused solutions that do a lot in the small and mid-market space. So there's a lot of good options out there. That's good news and bad news. So it's not just NetSuite. You have a lot of options if you're in the mid-market um, that you could consider in an evaluation. And if you'd like to more about that, you can go, if you go to my YouTube channel and just search uh, top ERP systems, small business, um, I have an independent ranking of the top 10 systems for, for the small and mid-sized market. The, the systems I just mentioned are in that top 10 list, but I also talk about a bunch of other ones as well. So be sure to check that out. You can go to YouTube and search for it. Or just Google my name and top 10 small business ERP, and you'll you'll find uh, the the videos and articles of mine where I, where I talk about some of those systems that you might consider. And then a, a last question here that is a really good one, the last question we'll get to here today at least, is from LinkedIn. I had a, a post on my LinkedIn um, page, and if you don't follow me, be sure to follow me on, on LinkedIn. Just search my name, uh, Eric Kimberling, and we push out. This podcast, for example, streams every Wednesday to LinkedIn. Um, I post daily on LinkedIn, lots of different uh, blogs and articles and videos and podcasts and things of that nature. So be sure to follow me there if you don't already. But on LinkedIn, uh, someone commented on my benefits realization post. It was a post I made about uh, the importance of benefits realization and uh, and or value creation. That's another you know kind of emerging term that a lot of organizations will use to describe what is it we're actually getting out of the investments we've just made in technology. And so in this post, someone commented and said, who do you think should manage the measurement of benefits realization? And this is a great question because, first of all, it's sort of like a hot potato sort of thing. When you talk about benefits realization, it's one of those things where, you know, organizations intuitively know that they can and should create a business case to justify the investment in technology, but they don't intuitively follow up on that and say, well, we thought we'd get X amount of business value. We justified the investment and we justified the project by quantifying X amount of value, but rarely do organizations intuitively know to go back and measure and see, did we actually get that amount of value? And when we don't achieve that value up front, which most organizations don't, we can use that as a way to fine tune and optimize. How do we get more out of it? So in other words, if I predict or if I estimate that an organization is going to get a million dollars of savings per year as a result of an implementation of new technology, that's going to help me justify a project. It's going to help me get board approval, management approval, buy-in from the organization, all that stuff. 
But what's even more important, I would argue, much more important than that actual business case justification is the benefits realization plan. How am I going to get a million dollars of savings? I quantify it as potential, but how am I actually going to get it? And putting in new technology alone is not going to get you there. Uh, partly because most organizations don't put the technology in in an optimized fashion to begin with. So they end up with sort of a subpar uh, implementation of technology, and so they fall short right there. But in addition to that, as we all know, you know the business value, the benefits realization isn't based on the technology. Technology is not the most important consideration. What's more important is how we configure the technology and how we align our business processes with the technology, and also, even more importantly, how the users accept the software and how we've addressed the organizational change component and the user adoption and the overall employee experience to ensure that they're getting what they were promised as part of the uh, business case justification. And so when we add all that stuff up, what ends up happening is I quantify a million dollars of business value annually. That's the potential of the investment. But then when I go live on new technology, let's just say I only get $100,000, $200,000 a year of annual savings. I don't come close to that million dollars that I estimated that I used to justify the project and the big investment that I just made. So then the question becomes, what, why is there a delta there? And usually it's, it's pretty small stuff that is holding you back from you know, the difference between, say, $200,000 in annual savings versus a million. It's usually pretty small pivots and tweaks that need to be made. But most organizations don't even realize that they're not realizing the business value because they never went back to measure it. And once you measure it, then you can start to do some root cause analysis of why are we only getting a fraction of the business value we thought we'd get. And when organizations take that pretty small amount of time and effort, when you consider it against the context of what it took to go through the entire implementation, what you find is that um, there's not much time and effort to realize that there's little tiny incremental improvements you can make to the optimization of your technology that are going to lead to very big, significant improvements to the business value. So for example, a lot of times when we do this analysis for clients, we find that the software can fully support the business value that we've, we've quantified or estimated or projected, but because people weren't trained appropriately, they're not using the software the way they could or should, there's functionality baked into the technology that's not being used by the organization, so we need to do some basic refresher training for subsets of the organization. That's the sort of stuff that's going to lead to optimizing business value, and it's going to actually move the needle very significantly in terms of uh, the business value you expected versus what you actually get. So that's the first step is that you have to have that process in place to identify the gaps between what you thought versus what you actually realized in terms of business, business value. But then the next question is who owns that? Who's responsible for that? And you know what I would say is that first of all, the uh, CFO um, is is you know someone who's oftentimes a good candidate for making sure that that happens, um, largely because they're responsible typically for investments, capital spending that the organization makes, but also it's a very quantitative uh, business value focused thing that oftentimes falls within the realm of the CFO. So a lot of times you need to have the CFO or whoever the executive sponsor is for the project. That person really needs to have that awareness and that focus on let's make sure we get business value out of the project and that we actually focus on benefits realization. Because otherwise what happens is you get to a certain phase of a project, you hit a milestone to go live for part of the organization or for certain modules, then you move on to the next phase of the project and you just sort of, you, you, you declare victory, you went live, now you move on to phase two. And that's what 
you know, sort of the mentality of most organizations is. Whereas they'd be much better off and they'd get more business value if they sort of slowed down and said, okay, we went live. Now let's spend a little bit of time not just stabilizing the system and making sure it works, but really fully optimizing and getting business value out of the system. And that's a lot easier to do right at the time you go live rather than waiting years down the road after you've already sort of baked the new processes and the new technology into your your organization. So um, who owns it? That's that's a tougher question in my mind. And that's part of the problem I think organizations have is no one is ultimately responsible for it. But I think the CFO is typically the one that makes the most sense. If not the CFO, then whoever the executive sponsor is, if that's your CIO or CEO or whoever it is, that person or that executive steering committee, it needs to start at the top, really. It has to be someone at the top saying, hey, we're going to not just use these numbers as a business case justification, but we're going to use these numbers to actually realize the business value we expected to get out of our out of our technology. So great question there about benefits realization. It's something that we don't talk enough about in as an industry and organizations in general don't focus enough on benefits realization um, when they go through digital transformation. So I think it's a great question and very, very relevant in uh, today's day and age. So great stuff, great questions. If you have other questions or you ever have questions you want to have addressed on the show, you can either drop them in the chat wherever you're listening or watching to this podcast or wherever you engage with our social media. So if you're following me on LinkedIn or YouTube or wherever it may be, um, be sure to uh, follow me there first of all, and then tag me and uh, drop in the chat or drop a comment on one of my posts or one of my videos, and uh, we'll get to those questions uh, on this podcast. So thank you for for the great questions we had there. So we're gonna shift gears here and talk about a couple hot topics here in a moment. Um, we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna talk about how SAP is growing and focusing on the mid market, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the the success that they've had there so far, as well as some of the challenges they're having. Uh, moving into the mid-market. And then we're also going to share a case study of the Dutch lottery out of the Netherlands and some of their purpose-focused angles of their digital transformation, where they balance profit and perf- purpose with with their digital transformation. And we'll talk about how that can relate to your digital transformation potentially. And then later in the show, we'll have our first guest, who's uh, Noon Esposito. I'm pretty sure I'm pr- mispronouncing his name, so I'm going to let him pronounce it correctly when he's on the show but I'll call him Noon for now. He's the senior VP and head of design at Infor, and he's going to be on the show talking about the role of user experience in digital transformation. It's something we've never talked about on the show. We've never had a a guest or a segment focused solely on this topic, but it's a very important one, and it's an emerging, uh, increasingly important topic as well. So we'll stick around for that. And then later in the show, we'll have Amanda Patton and Kyler Cheatham on the show talking about the importance of choosing the right implementation partner. So we're going to have a discussion between the two of them talking about some of the considerations you should have as you go through your digital transformation. And as you choose implementation partners, some of the things you should be thinking about. So stick around for that as well. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. I'm excited to share our newly released 2024 Digital Enterprise Operations Report. This free download is available on the Third Stage website at thirdstage-consulting.com. This report is truly packed full of technology independent and agnostic insights for your project to ensure that you're strategically optimized for success. Download your copy today with the QR code in front of me or visit our website for more details.
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 145. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital strategy, the people, process, and technology aspects of transformation. So thank you for being here today. New episodes every Wednesday you can find at transformationgroundcontrol.com. So if you'd like to view past episodes, you'd like to keep up with episodes as they're released, just go to transformationgroundcontrol.com every week. New, New episodes are dropping every Wednesday. And if you go to that website, transformationgroundcontrol.com, you'll find the aggregated view of all the different platforms that you can listen or watch to this podcast. So be sure to, to check us out there. So we've got a couple of hot topics that we want to get to here today. Uh, one is to start uh, SAP's focus on the mid-market. And um, this is a really interesting article and interesting uh, thread here. Um, SAP recently... Uh, announced and launched their Grow With SAP program. They launched that uh, in March of 2023. And the whole initiative was really focused on, or is really focused on, increasing adoption of SAP in the mid-market. And what's really interesting about SAP is I think they, they have sort of a, a blessing and a curse in their, their position in the marketplace. I mean, they are, they're a dominant player, if not the dominant player in the big enterprise space. So as far as Fortune 1000, Fortune 500, multinational global organizations, SAPS 4 HANA is on the radar for most of those organizations. Even if they're not implementing it, they're at least considering it in many cases. Um, they may, I, I don't have data to back this, they may actually have the largest market share um, in the uh, in the upper enterprise space. And I think they do uh, dominate or have the, the biggest market share when you compare them to Oracle or Microsoft or other, other ERP software providers. Um, so that's the good news for SAP strategy is they've, they've got a, a sort of a stranglehold or a lock on that upper upper enterprise space, but where they've struggled is in the mid-market, and they, they haven't had as much luck moving downstream to the mid-market, and part of it is because you know their products have historically been built for larger, more complex, more robust organizations, and that complexity and that software functionality does not always translate into the needs of the small and mid-market. And in many cases, it's overkill, it's too complex, it's too costly, it's too much, you know, it's just too much technology for a, for a small and mid-sized organization. So that's why they've struggled over the years. And so what they've done, you know, even before this Grow With SAP program was launched in 2023, even prior to that, they had, they had a couple products that they were focusing or using to focus on the mid-market. They had uh, SAP Business One and SAP Business by Design. There's a two different systems or different solutions that they were offering to the small and mid-market. And I think, if I remember correctly, both of those were acquisitions that SAP acquired um, from other companies, and they sort of baked that into the SAP suite of products. And I would say it's had limited success globally. I think um, Business One has been, in particular, has been very successful in certain pockets or regions of the world, but I wouldn't consider it something that's been super successful globally at helping SAP penetrate the the small and mid-market. Um, I know, you know, in some parts of the world, if you're listening, I'd love to hear from your feedback or your perspective. Are you seeing a lot of use of SAP Business One or Business by Design still um, in, in different parts of the world? And uh, from what I understand, I believe they're going to be shifting away from those products. SAP is going to be shifting away from those products and more focusing on S4 HANA, which is why I presume why they launched this Grow with SAP program. And this Grow with SAP program uh, was launched uh Early this year, they've had 440 companies from 80 countries that have taken advantage of this of this program so far. And really what the program is, is it's taking S, S4HANA's cloud public edition 
which is the multi-tenant sort of the um, we'll call it the back to the question earlier in this podcast about uh, NetSuite. You know, what what systems should you be considering in addition to NetSuite if NetSuite is on your radar? Um, the S4 HANA Cloud Public Edition may be one you consider, especially if you're you're looking at it from the context of this growth SAP program. And what this does is it allows um, sort of an accelerated, a stripped down approach to deploying S4 HANA to to sort of fit the needs of the small to mid market who are not going to necessarily spend millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars on an S4 HANA deployment, but they might be willing to invest something less than that. And so it's something that is meant to provide a lower cost, lower risk option. Um, it's, it's meant to provide predefined best practices for various industries. It uses AI, embeds AI and automated processes into the technology, provides some resources for small and mid-market companies to take more of a do-it-yourself approach and you know, sort of a self-sufficient sort of approach to, to implementation. And then they also provide access to the, their development platform called SAP Build, which is their, their low-code, no-code development platform. So it's meant to sort of take something that's meant and built for the big upper market of the space and is sort of trying to strip it down a bit and package it in a way that's repeatable and scalable in the small and mid-market. And going back to SAP strategy, uh, Lloyd Adams is the president of SAP North America. He says that the mid-market is seen as the, the next big growth segment for SAP. So they're really banking on having some significant growth in the mid-market as a way to fuel the growth of the company. And um, there's been, as I mentioned, hundreds of different companies that have taken advantage of this program, uh, but there's also been challenges too. Um, one of the um, analysts in the space, Lori McCabe, uh, commented on some of the difficulties that people face when um, adopting SAP's various products, um, especially when you compare it to you know, some of the more straightforward offerings from Oracle NetSuite or Microsoft D365. Um, so SAP does, as I mentioned, they have these multiple products that they're trying to figure out how to fit into the small and mid market and how to, how to um, you know, fit into the longer term roadmap as well. And uh, that can get confusing and uh, overwhelming to a lot of organizations. And, you know, the fact of the matter is it's still SAP. And so SAP for some organizations is still going to be too much. Even with this grow program, it's still maybe that it's um, too much. It may be too much complexity. It may be too much software. It may be too much risk for an organization. But I think there's a space for it for sure, especially for organizations that are growing very quickly and they're trying to scale up quickly and they are potentially in some ways acting like a larger core corporation. So in other words, they might have a very diverse product line, a very diverse customer base, um, very complex business processes, even though they're in the small urban market, in which case this SAP growth program may be a great sort of compromise. It's something that gives them SAP or something like SAP that allows them to scale, but it also um, is something that isn't um, quite as complex as a as sort of a, a, a normal or a tr uh, traditional S4 HANA implementation. So um, should be interesting to see what happens. There's also questions about the ecosystem. You know, SAP has built a really strong ecosystem for the big enterprises, but they don't necessarily have an ecosystem for that small and mid-market. And when I say ecosystem, I mean implementation partners and consultants that specialize in their product for the small and mid-market. So that'll probably change over time. And SAP has proven they can build a big ecosystem and a, and a supportive ecosystem um, in the upper mid, uh, the upper. Uh, segments of the market. So there's no reason to think they can't necessarily do it in the, in the mid market. So we'll see how that goes and we'll keep an eye on that as well. So 
great story, great, uh, interesting hot topic there uh, as it relates to SAP in particular. Um, another uh, really interesting hot topic we want to get to here today is the Dutch Lottery and the official name of the organization. And I apologize to my Dutch friends that are listening here today because I there's a 99% chance I'm going to mispronounce this, but uh, Net- Netherlands Lottergy, I believe is the official organization's name, which if we translate it into, you know, from Dutch into English, that's the Dutch Lottery. So I'm just going to say Dutch Lottery from here on out, but I felt compelled to at least uh, try to say the name of the, the, the real name of the organization. Um, but what's interesting about this is it, it's the Dutch Lottery, which um, has entered the, uh, or has dealt with a lot of competitors that have entered the online gambling space. So online gambling is becoming more and more prevalent in some parts of the world. In many parts of the world, it's still gambling of all forms is still illegal. So uh, for, for many of you listening, this may not be something that's relevant to your geography, but the point of the story and the case study is very relevant, regardless of what industry you might be in. But what they have done here with the Dutch Lottery is they have decided that they wanted to uh, def- define some KPIs. They're not just focused on technology improving profitability, which is certainly important, but they also want to um, have KPIs in place that support their mission of becoming the most responsible provider of online games. So as the Dutch lottery is moving into and competing with more online gambling providers, um, they wanted to also have some KPIs around the ethics of gambling. So they wanted to, uh, for example, measure addiction and fraud as it relates to to gambling. Um, And they ultimately decided that uh, they wanted to adopt a KPI butterfly framework where they um, take traditional business metrics like profitability and things of that nature, but also look at things like societal impact. So I mentioned addiction and fraud. They want to measure the levels of addiction and fraud in their community to make sure that they're not just measuring profitability, but they're also looking at the societal impact and more the sort of the ethics, if you will, um, of their business. Um, they also take a very data-centric approach to, to measuring this data, capturing and, and gathering and collecting this data, and also looking at uh, how they can view this as more of a cultural transformation. So they're really using this as a way to not just measure societal impact, but to really embed that way of thinking and that accountability into the culture of the organization so that behaviorally they start to act differently and they start to um, really become a company that is focused not only on profitability, but also societal impact. And what that's doing is it's increasing the uh, the attractiveness that they have as, a, as an employer. So it's helping with their talent management, their recruiting efforts uh, as well. And um, and it's also helped their reputation with, with other uh, stakeholders and regulators as well. And so they're also using it as a way to differentiate on ESG or environmental, so- social, and governance. Um, that's a big term that a lot of organizations, especially bigger organizations, especially multinational organizations, are starting to look more at is this ESG um, dimension of business, which is the environmental, social, and governance aspects. And this is really a way for them to differentiate themselves from their competitors, especially in a space like gambling, where there are oftentimes ethical and regulatory questions and issues and concerns. ESG is really a way for them to sort of balance that and provide some some direction and some uh, focus on the values that they're most important on. And so um, those are just some some really interesting things. And I think what it does is it is allows us as organizations to think about as we go through digital transformations, as we change our business, 
how can we maximize profit and maximize sort of that end result that we're aiming for as an organization? Um, but also how can we measure and focus on things that are um, maybe not directly related to profitability, although I would argue that ESG, a focus on ESG and some of these environmental and social things can actually lead to more profitability. Um, but even if it doesn't, it still gives you, you know, sort of a way to focus your organization and a way to measure outside the realm of your traditional uh, ROI-based metrics that are, that are very quantitative and focused on profitability and cash flow and things of that nature. So um, really interesting stuff. I'd be curious to hear from the audience if your organization or your digital transformation projects are using any sort of environmental or societal, social types of uh, measures um, outside the sort of the usual uh, profitability-based metrics as well. I'd be curious to hear your feedback, so I'd love to see what you have to say in the chat here uh, on this episode. So great stuff, a couple of really interesting topics there. Um, hopefully you found those interesting, those, those uh, couple of uh, hot topics here uh, helpful as well. So we're going to bring on our first guest on this episode. He's going to be on uh, here in just a moment, and he's actually a first-time guest. He's never been on the show, and we have never covered this topic on the show, so I'm super excited for that. Anytime I can find a new topic that almost feels like, you know, how could we go two and a half years without ever covering this topic in any sort of detail? Better late than never. We're going to do it today. And the, the topic is the role of user experience in digital transformation. And joining me uh, for that conversation is going to be Nunzio from Infor. He's the head of design. He's a senior vice president and the head of design at Infor. And so he's got a very creative, visual, design-focused mind, but he also has a really good way of bringing things back back down to earth for us lay people to understand. I am not at all a user design type person. Um, I'm probably the least visually creative person you'll ever meet. So I'm the last person you'd want to be talking about user experience. So rather than me talking about it, I'm going to bring on an expert and we're going to ask a lot of questions of him and he knows a lot about it and he's, he's going to um, have a lot to say about that. I'm sure I, I recently saw him present at a conference and decided to ask him on the podcast because he did such a good job of describing some of these concepts of user experience in user design. So excited to have him on. So we're going to have Nunzio from Infor talking about user experience and design here in just a moment. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 145. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. We stream new episodes to LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and we also drop audio versions of the podcast to all the major audio podcast platforms like Apple Apple Podcast, Amazon, Google, etc. So be sure to check that out there. You can just go to transformationgroundcontrol.com for access to all of those different platforms where you can find the podcast. So be sure to check it out there. 
So I'm excited for our next guest, first-time guest on the show. Um, I'd love to say he's a first-time guest, long-time listener, but I don't know if he listens to the show, but hopefully after today he he uh, does. And uh, this is Nunzio, who is the Senior Vice President and Head of Design from Infor. And he's going to be on here uh, here today talking about the role of user experience in digital transformation. And I really wanted to have him on the show because he does a great job of presenting these topics in a way that a layperson can understand. And he also has a way of describing this stuff in a way that you can understand, regardless of what type of technology you're evaluating or, or potentially deploying. He happens to work for Infor, but he's got a great uh, global view of this topic here. And I thought it'd be great to have him on the show to speak about this from sort of a, a tech agnostic perspective as well. So all that being said, uh, Nunzio, thank you for being here today. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited about this. Yeah, absolutely. Before we, before we jump in, I appreciate having you. I appreciate you being here today. Uh, but before we jump into these questions about user experience and how it relates to digital transformation, uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about, about yourself. And then once you've done that, maybe tell us a little bit about Infor and who Infor is. Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is uh, Nuncio Esposito, but everybody could just call me Nuns uh, for short. Um, I oversee uh, our global design program um, here at Infor. Uh, I've been at Infor for almost a decade now which uh, you know, seems like a long time, but uh, it's been very fast paced uh, in various roles. Um, and you know, one of the big things that I think we've been spearheading along the way is making sure that design doesn't just have a, a, a seat at the table when it comes to executive decisions and potentially like business or product strategy. It's more about getting deeper into the ebb and flow in the way in which software development um, basically gets made and ensuring that um, there's you know proper collaboration and uh, good support to ensure that we uh, we're always fo focusing on the end users' outcomes. Um, so you know, very excited to be uh, with you today, sharing in this dialogue. Absolutely. Now, was your your role at Infor was that a new role that was created that you sort of filled um, when you took that role, or is it something that had existed even before you were? In the no. I'm just curious. Yeah, no, it, it, that's a good question. It did exist before, um, you know, it, there was a leader, my predecessor, um, that really, I think, forged and pioneered the idea that uh, we needed design to be part of software development. As you can imagine, you know, very feature, feature function driven, um, which I, I would say most large enterprise uh, software providers, um, you know, it's the thing that they should be doing really well. Um, so it was definitely pioneered there, uh, formed in 2012. Mm. But um, I think the difference from where it was then in its uh, infancy to where we are now in our maturity, the difference was it was a centralized design team, which was very much like a design agency at the time. Um, and I think a lot of the challenges that it had was uh, design designs and design ideas, ideation, design specs was kind of like handing it over the fence, which was basically like, here you go, neighbor, do something with this. Right. Um, and that only goes so far. Uh, a lot of things get lost in translation, uh, especially as you move toward more uh, modern agile practices, you really want design to be embedded. So in 2018, when I was asked to lead the global team, um, that was one of the big, I think, change management opportunities that I saw ahead with my with the org as we were rebuilding 
which was how do we get closer to the dev centers? How do we get closer to uh, the end user? And how do we get more upfront access when it comes to where product management plays, which is the balance between product strategy and business strategy um, so that we can make better informed decisions. So that's been the journey that we've been on. Very interesting. Yeah, and it's interesting to think that there's a whole function and a whole competency within companies like Infor that are solely focused on that user design and user experience. And I think Infor has been sort of a pioneer in that thinking because I think, um, you know, with with a lot of their focus over the last few years in the strategy of the company, it seems like user experience is a core sort of a tenant of the of the overall strategy and what the value proposition of, of the product line is. Um, before yeah, we jump... Before we jump into all this user experience stuff, and I've got a ton of questions for you here, and I know the audience will have questions too. Uh, one thing, sure. just sort of reading up on your profile and learning a little bit about your background leading up to today, I, I saw that you like to restore British chariots in your spare time. Can you tell us a little bit? Just, <laughs> that, that sort of jumped out at me, and I'm like, British chariots? I don't know. I, yeah, I, I yeah. So, with that with that passion project. So tell us a little bit about I guess. Yeah, so I, I'm so obviously my nationality is Italian, um, and Italian car designers actually did a lot for British chariots. Um, I call it chariots just to be cheeky, but um, right. I restore old uh, MGs uh, and Triumph vehicles. I do it in my spare time. And I really have a passion for it because I'm a tinkerer. I can never sit still. Um, so if I'm not working, I'm in my garage. Uh, and the way that I approach looking at those cars is really around having an appreciation for what they were and what what kind of experience that they were uh, designed against and designed for, but it's all about how do I modernize it for today's times? Um, you know, more safety, better performance, maybe some electronics that actually don't bust and break down. Right. Um, and I find very strong parallels between, you know, uh, historically, what is an ERP and how are we modernizing that ERP for today's times um, to enrich the experience for the users and not just deliver on the business promise. So there's, there are alter worlds, alter parallels, but uh, there's a lot of similarities. So thanks yeah. for asking. Yeah, it's got, I imagine that's a, a creative outlet for you as well. And just sort of a different, totally. different way than, than you're used to. Totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Very cool. So, so just starting with the basics, if we sort of back up and let's just assume someone like me doesn't know anything about user experience, I have no idea what it is. I've heard the, I've heard the term UX or user experience. Um, how would you sort of simplify it and explain it in layman's term? What, what is user design and why is it so important to digital transformation? Yeah, so, one, so user experience, one is the practice, um, which I think is, you know, uh, if someone is a user experience designer, uh, you'll hear terms like product designer. Uh, you and then you get into the cross gamut, which is like content strategy, content design, UX engineering, and front end development, and you get into all these these facets of what user experience is as part as part of a career and skill set. But I think for the audience, what really matters is is focused on the end users' uh, workflow and business process that they have with the software, and making sure that they have what we call modern affordances. And an affordance is like, these are like baseline expectations of how the software should work and engage with the user all the way up to how can we make them as our CTO and president says more productive. Um, and our team is driving not just user productivity, but more importantly, how do we give a better sense of meaning and purpose at work? So we call that user satisfaction. 
Um, those are the things like it works, it looks good. And we, I think we should definitely talk about how uh, users do judge a book by its cover. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not just how it, it works and how it looks, but um, it really fulfills the promise that it's supposed to deliver. Uh, meaning I know where I am. It's easy to navigate uh, between different modules or different processes. I know what buttons to click on the interface. And oh, by the way, I hope that icon actually makes some sense. Um, so it's, it, there's, you know, you could slowly start peeling the onion and getting into the layers of the depth of an, a user interface. But um, it really has everything to do with the moment the user logs into uh, the software, um, and what they have access to, and then being able to be as productive and as satisfied as they can, uh, with performing their job functions, um, at their place of business. Yeah. 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 That's super interesting. And one, one, uh, tiny little nuance, I remember you talking about in a conference, I saw you present at an in for now conference several weeks ago in, uh, yeah, that's where we met. That's, where, yeah, that's I met. where I met you. And I said, Hey, will you be on my podcast? Cool. Um, <laughs> is because, uh, because I love the, the presentation cause I'd never, I'd seen presentations on user experience before, but it tended to get really like super deep into the specs, if you will. Whereas I felt like you mm -hmm. explained why some of the specs were so important. I really liked it. And one thing I remember it jumped out, you were talking about the, the spacing of fonts or something like that and how that can affect oh, icons. Icons, yeah. yeah. We were talking about icons. Yeah. And you were talking yeah, so about there's... how there's some sort of study or science behind how it affects the person's perception of, of their job or something. I can't remember. I, I apologize. I, I don't recall more than that, but I do remember no, it's okay. being super intrigued by that. Can you tell us a little bit about like that and other, what are some of those other little nuances that people may not think about when they think about user design? Yeah, sure. So, so it could get very complex really quick. Yeah. So I don't want to get, I don't want to get the audience too lost in the sauce as I would right. say, or getting too meta, but, but, you know, the one piece that you're calling out is with our low level uh, icons, which we call system icons. Those are the things that I think uh, users take for granted. And, um, you know, uh, I would even say software vendors take for, for granted, uh, software providers take for granted too. It's the things like, you know, um, what, what is the icon that you should have for save functionality? Or uh, what icon should you have for home or user profile? And those are some simple ones, but it gets very complex once you get into, I'm looking at a list of records and it, the record list is really dense. I mean, there's a lot of data on the screen. Um, and I need to be able to do a batch selection. And with that batch selection, I need to know how to override or edit what that selection is. Or I need to hit an icon that allows me to either open up or make more data density within the record lists. And all of these, all of these um, references or use cases that I'm giving, they all need to be um, conveyed in a very meaningful way that has to be juxtaposition to many other different functions. What things, not only what does it look like, what kind of labeling does needs to be done? What kind of testing do you need to do between geos? It can mean different in different cultures and languages. Um, so what we've been working on is taking a, a vast system icon library that we have, which is um, over a thousand elements and making sure that we are uh, creating better uh, visual recollection. So, you know, the minute I see it, the user should understand uh, what, it means what it means and what it provides. 
Um, and how can we also account for the fact that in, you know, very um, feature rich applications, there's n it's not like there's three or four icons on a screen. At times there could be like 15 or 20, depending on uh, the functionality of what it's providing. So what I was saying in that presentation was, we need to make sure that we're accounting for spacing, which is done optically. So you can imagine at a pixel by pixel level on in the interface, sure, there could be a good rhyme or reason to how you're gonna either vertically or horizontally align those elements. But it's one thing to do that from a mathematical perspective, and then it's another to do it visually, which sometimes accounts for the nuance to account for the element in the shape of that icon. So we were calling it optical spacing. Um, so there's a balance between these things. It's like the art and science of design. Um, and that's what we, we've been overhauling to make sure that it not only looks modern, um, but it doesn't create any visual vibration um, in the interface. And those are things that I think a lot of software development teams take for granted um, that could add a lot of uh, low level uh, UX value. We're here with Noons from Infor talking about the role of user experience in digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 145. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday by going to transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can find the video versions on various platforms at that website. You can also find the audio-only versions on different platforms at that same website as well. So just go to transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can see all the past episodes that you may have missed and uh, see upcoming episodes as well. So be sure to check that out. We're here in the midst of a conversation with Noon from Infor talking about the role of user experience in digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. When I think of user experience, um, the person that comes to mind is Steve Jobs. Like whenever I, I think of <laughs> design and user experience, and you know his his the innovation in in tech, not only technology but even just packaging. You know, you open a box with your iPhone. That you know, it's brilliant packaging. It's very simple. It it's was. easy to get you get started on using a product. Um, but I remember him saying, and, and I think it's, he's pretty well known for saying that he wouldn't do research to figure out what people wanted. He would design something, put it out there and sort of that agile mentality of just sort of, um, proactively anticipate what people want versus asking them what they want. How, mm -hmm. how much mm -hmm. with user design and, and sort of your philosophy of it, how much of it is sort of science-based as you mentioned versus like an art that you, that you're sort of trying to shape and 
lead the user to, to if that makes sense. I, you know, how much of it is art versus? Yeah, art, yeah, that that's actually, yeah. So that's actually a really good question, and I should probably should have wore my turtleneck. I needed a mock turtleneck <laughs> so I could channel right. channel my inner jobs. Um, right. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I would tell you. I think it depends on the audience in which you are uh, providing a service to through the through the software, and I'm going to get to what I mean by that. Um, and there's a lot of sayings around like. You know, if you, I, I don't know, it was like a Ford Motor Company, I, I think, quote that was said in the early 1900s, which was like, you know, if you asked everybody what they wanted, they wanted a faster horse. They wanted to said they wanted the car. Right. And I think those those types of people like, you know, Henry Ford with the Model T or Steve Jobs with not only the Apple computer, but I remember the profound effect I had when I opened up my iPod. When the first iPod came yeah. out, you were, you know, you were like all this music fits in here, you know, you couldn't even fathom it. Yeah. Um, the reality is, I think in general, humans want to be surprised. They want to know that if something is designed or really thought out really well, it's that concept of like, it not only looks good, but it works good too. And mm -hmm. it really fulfills that promise. Um, Ideally, it should have a pretty long shelf life, meaning, um, you know, you might be applying iter iterative features or enhancements to something, but it delivers that base, that, that base value and need. And as it continues to evolve, you continue to make sure that you sprinkle in some of that surprise and delight, um, which I think, you know, UXers, um, I think they are, they have that very close to their heart but it's not so easy to achieve all the time based on uh, specific requirements or needs or et cetera. So the reason why I, I say it that way to start is I think that there are two major divides in the enterprise space. Um, and I think a lot of what uh, CIOs and leads of IT departments that we work with are really grappling with, which is, hey, I have this I have this constituent base, this employee base that has been using our business software for 15, 20 years. And you're going like, oh, wow. You know, like, you know, you, you, you account for that and you're like, okay, so the Windows operating system, was that like Windows 98? Was that 3.1? What's going on? Okay, so like, that's that. You know, and then you start getting into like, man, they were using computers that turned yellow over time, you know, Manila. Right. You're like, okay, that's that base. Right. And then the other base is, which is a good segue to digital transformation, really gets into, you know, the up and coming employee or relatively new to the company. Doesn't need to be an age perspective. It's just a demographic perspective. Early tenure, early in career. Um, and as they're joining, um, you know, that hemisphere, that divide, that half, it's all about like, can this thing work faster? Can it look good? Um, you know, you're making me learn how to do this process and like, man, that feels a little clunky. I don't understand why I have to go here and traverse to there and go everywhere. I, I just want to do that in one spot. So you have this dichotomy between and I don't like calling it legacy because I think that that is condescending at times. Mm -hmm. I would just say like deep business IP, 
and and knowledge and they've been and those constituents those users they've been trained they've been educated they found their own workarounds with the system and they become very hyper like change averse mm-hmm. at times and yeah. then the other side is going i don't want to use this i wish this thing could change i wish it could change faster uh by the way i don't really like the way this looks and oh you know maybe you shouldn't tell me how to make how i should do my job i want to figure out how i want to do my job and they're like polar opposites of this continuum and um you know that's why i think at least myself and the the team that we're building and how we approach it at infor um you don't want to leave anybody behind but you also don't want to just always solve for the deep ip users of a business because then you're leaving this door open for the what if and what's possible in doing it different and those things are pulling at each other and with the rate of change in technology you can't you can't choose one over the other mm-hmm. and you need to take risks and i think that's what that's what i liked about you know henry ford steve jobs and etc et it was just like there's got to be a better way to do this and i want those users, those people, those customers to join that journey and others will follow. Yeah. So there's got, there's got to be a balance uh, in that. How much of what you do is informed by or influenced by or led by consumer grade technology and user design? So in other words, I, you in this triggered this question when you were talking about the the deep IP and the users that have been around a long time, they've worked around these difficult clunky systems and they found a way to make it all work. And then you've got the newer, younger employees that have never heard of a transaction code, for example. They don't, they can't even fathom yeah. the idea of a green screen with no graphical user interface where you have yeah. to memorize a transaction code. That, that doesn't, that's like a foreign language to someone who's younger, who grew up on, you know, technologies like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, all that stuff. So how much of that, type of technology that consumer grade technology influences enterprise technology or is there any sort of connection there in your mind? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <coughs> apologize. Um, I intentionally waited until you're about to cough to ask you that question. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I would tell you with the green screen thing, just as a, a, a sidebar, um, what prompt engineering and prompt design that's happening because of Gen AI, I would tell you, you're going to see interfaces like that come back it's in coming style. Back. <laughs> Um, now you might not need to have to know the item code and you right. could just speak in, in, in human speak, like just simple, I need to process this or find this, but like the interfaces are going to be getting, um, very much simpler and, and very, um, two-way dialogue because the system is taken on that burden. But, um, you know, getting into the consumer grade experiences, I would tell you early at Infor, um, and I think design in general at the enterprise space. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking now, I'm saying now broader than Infor. I think everybody was really gunning for what is that consumer grade experience for, um, you know, feature rich uh, business software. I think that was, you know, that was the prize. It was mm-hmm. like, we need to focus on that. We need to do that. We need to get that. And if we could do that, you know, we're going to win. We're going to lead. We're going to lead in that space or we're going to be the number one vendor, the number one provider. Um, I would tell you it's at a point where I think that a company, as they go to figure out what that means to them, um, and I mean that from a software provider all the way to, you know, uh, IT, 
business choosing a vendor, don't get enamored by the shininess of consumer grade or what is said, because it's about how it's actually really applied and saw and, and, and seen through to the, mm. the totality of what that offering is. So baseline to me, consumer grade is the user interface, not so much the UX side of the house, right. the user interface. It's what it looks like, you know, and those things should be very modern. Um, there should be modern affordances. If there's a, you know, a business user that is using Office 365, and let's say for a CRM, they're using Salesforce, we need to make sure that the ERP or the workforce management module or, you know, the product lifecycle management uh, application, it could, it could, it could fit in line is at in par, meaning it's a level playing field. Um, and it doesn't try to highlight one is more dated or, you know, one doesn't fulfill on that promise of the UI different from there. Now, ideally you want them all to be the same, but you know, that I think we should talk about it. Maybe that's a follow-up podcast because I do believe singularity will be achieved in, in, in a distant future, but you know, we're getting into like ethics at the same time. Right. But um, I, I, modern interface to me is the consumer grade experience. Um, you know, button styles, page layouts, form styles, um, iconography, like we were talking about nomenclature, what things are named. Is it, is it simple to understand and et cetera. When it gets into though, what it fulfills, meaning, um, deep search functionality or how to better do simple things, uh, better perform simple things like CRUD functions or being able to parse multiple data sets at large volume and doing it in a very simple and meaningful way. To me, consumer grade helps to inform, meaning you can use it as an outside in agent to see how others are doing it. But when it applies to the enterprise space, you can't compare it apples to apples. It's, it's not like a binary transaction because what ends up happening is at least for what I've encountered and our team has encountered, you can solve for like one way of doing it. And then when you end up realizing is it's configurable 18 other ways, there's 72 other use cases that that user might potentially need to be able to perform this thing. Right. And the complexity that it's offering is so deep and vast that it's like, you get to a point you're like that consumer grade, like it wouldn't even be able to hold water. Right. So it's a balance. Mm. And I think you take it face value initially, and then you get deep into what's the user, what are the use cases, and what is the hyper configuration that enterprise software needs to provide or account for. And then it's kind of like, use that as a guiding light, but don't use it as the only way in which you make the decision because you'll be putting yourself, you know, painting yourself or putting yourself into a corner. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, a good point. And, you know, the the needs and the business processes and the functions of an enterprise are much, much different, more complex than posting a reel on Instagram. You know, that that's. Yeah, yeah I, totally. I, I mean, I'm posting totally. a video real quick. It takes me 30 seconds and I'm done. This is what we're talking about here is something that someone uses five, six, seven, eight hours a day. They're engaging and interacting with a system to do multiple complex transactions. And so I think that's a, it's an interesting balancing act you talk about there and a good reminder that it's not always going to look like Instagram or Snapchat or whatever consumer grade technology you're, you're trying to compare your enterprise technology to. 
Yeah. So you just gotta, you gotta embrace, embrace the complexity and, yeah. and, and, and solve within the constraints. But I yeah. think that like, don't fight it. Right. And I think that that's been, that's culturally a big thing that I believe the design team here at Infor uh, learned as it, you know, it ramped up its maturity here. Um, and I feel like we're finally starting to pioneer how those product decisions get made so mm -hmm. that we can account for it. And it's very exciting, very yeah. exciting for myself. And I know it's very exciting for our team. Yeah. Yeah. You def you guys definitely have a, a more of a focus on it. I'd say than a lot of, a lot of software and enterprise technology vendors and providers out there for sure. We're here with Noons from Infor talking about the role of user experience in digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Could you whisper in my ear the things you want to feel? I'll give you energy. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 145. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday by going to transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can find the video versions on various platforms at that website. You can also find the audio-only versions on different platforms at that same website as well. So just go to transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can see all the past episodes that you may have missed and uh, see upcoming episodes as well. So be sure to check that out. We're here in the midst of a conversation with Noon from Infor talking about the role of user experience in digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. Um, here's a question that sort of comes back to a point you, you talked about a moment ago, Noon. And this is from Ryan on LinkedIn. And Ryan says, has the prevalence of AI changed or improved you and your team's ability to perform your roles? And maybe taking it a step further, sure. taking that question a step further, how is AI affecting the job and the role of user design, user experience? Um, how, how do you anticipate that AI will, especially generative AI, how, how will that impact user experience and user design yeah. going forward? Great question, Ryan. Uh, nice to digitally meet you. Um, <laughs> so so there's many different facets of Gen AI uh, and, you know, uh, Infor is definitely uh, taking a strategic stance on this. Just, come, just came out of a Gen AI summit a couple of weeks ago um, with cross-functional global leaders so we can address those use cases and needs. When it comes to our team and the way that we leverage it, um, it's a really amazing tool to find out, find information that you sometimes ask yourself, you know, what if, or what don't I know that I need to know? So I'll give I'll give an example. An example could be, I'm a shop foreman at a distribution center. I oversee, you know, a large warehouse and I have 15 employees. And in there, I need to make sure that I'm accounting for the speeds and feeds of the business so that I can perform my job functions 
and meet the demand of order volume and et cetera. Right. So I'm just using this as an example. Sure. Gen AI is awesome at, I am a user experience designer and I need to know this role. What does this role need? What is this role's pain points are? How can I liberate this role? Meaning make their job easier or faster or more meaningful. It's awesome at parsing large volume of data like that and presenting it in a very simple, simple manner. So it is digestible and consumable to a designer to then take that information and really start to engage with product management or product owner or business analyst or a development engineer and asking questions. It's like, I look at it as it brings you to a level playing field when you might not necessarily have that end user knowledge. It's a place to start. Right. That's how I look at it. Okay. Right. Um, and our team's been leveraging it massive when it comes to uh, fulfilling user pro, uh, personas. So it's like in persona definition, persona writing. Um, but we don't take it for granted. We don't take it for bi binary sen sense, which means I ask a question, it gives me the, the result. And we're like, yep, that's it. You know, we definitely mm -hmm. want to validate that. Um, and on top of it, we want to make sure that it also has a in four point of view in it. We want to make sure that it is, um, we ask those specific questions to our current customers. Um, and we have some uh, proprietary tooling that uses, you know, customers in, in the market that don't use Infor, but we have access to those users to fill in that information. Hmm. So, you know, we use it to speed up a lot of user research in simplest terms. It's awesome at that. Um, <clears throat> it's also great at doing things like checking code integrity or doing design QA uh, for our design system using like a, a repo and checking to make sure that it might have, you know, we uh, we're doing our, all our checks and balances for documentation. Um, can a system generate a UI based on some of those standards? So, you know, it, we're not trying to replace anybody, but we're trying to make sure that we're meeting a specific level of um, integrity and efficacy in our work. And it's really good at augmenting that as well. So that's how our team is using it right now. That's in, for internal means. When it comes to the business, um, we're looking at Gen AI in very profound ways. Um, as you can imagine, as a large enterprise provider, global, with large tenant rooftops, you know, like in specific industries, you're talking about 500,000 plus users. Or in other industries, you're talking about, let's say, a couple of hundred users, but each of those users are doing like six job functions. So, you know, large disparity there, but large volume. There's a ton of data. So how can we make better sense of that data? How can we present that data in more meaningful ways? How can we um, I'll, I'll let the business leverage that data to make better business decisions? But more importantly, how can we give very fast, quick recall or pro, pro, uh, proactiveness in what is being what's happening there what's learned and what could be applied so that a user can make you know quicker decisions or see what's going on so the way we're looking at that right now is in you know uh process like business process uh efficiency performance um and you know obviously it's the speed and feeds of the business and for an end user it's how can we meet that end user where they are uh given in the in for business ecosystem and make sure that they feel supported 
you know, I need something or I can't find something or I want to know something. Um, and then how can we make that feel um, like it could complete a task for them? Meaning I, XPO needs to be adjusted for X quantities and I need to send out that update and response to blank. So quick, quick prompt, boom, performs it, gets the job done. So that's how we're looking at it. And it's um, as we iterate, um, iterate our way forward. Um, and then the hmm. third tier would be our customer base for Gen AI. And I think, you know, you, some questions you were telling me are UX, CX, EX that we're going to get into. Right. I think that any customer, any business provider um, that has a large employee base or a small rooftop, I would just start playing with it because you could get really amazed. You, you'd be really amazed at um, what it knows. And then once you start thinking about your data in mix with it, you know, it starts to really open up your mind um at what its possibilities are it's very profound yeah yeah very cool and you you sort of hinted at or or provided a great segue into a follow-up question on that which is you you mentioned the acronyms ux cx and ex and let's just unpack real quickly what each of those means or what what they stand for and then i, I want to ask you what the difference is and what they mean and how they how they tie together ux is user experience there's cx which is customer experience and then EX yep. is another emerging buzzword, which is employee experience. Explain so you get user experience. experience, customer experience, employee experience. What's the difference between the three and how do they all tie together? Oh man, should we ask ChatGPT? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so simplest way for me to explain it, or at least to put a frame of mind, user experience, it applies to both of those facets. It's the mm -hmm. base foundation because it doesn't matter what role you are, or who's using the system, um, you're classified as a user and you need to make sure that it's fulfilling on the functions or the, you know, the business process, the job duties. Um, and it's doing it in a very simple and intuitive manner, mm -hmm. user experience, base baseline. It's in everything. It's in everything. And if it's not digital, it's even physical. Right. So, um, it's just the way we live. It's the way we act. Um, I think the customer experience, has everything to do with the large user segments. So this is now like all the constituents th that make up a business. So it's the you know office of the C-suite, it's the C-suite, it's the line managers, it's the directors, it's um, you know, it's part-time or full-time employees. That that whole trail, if you were to package it all up and basically say, hey, we're a software provider. And we want to offer you the best customer experience possible, especially in SaaS. That has everything to do with, you bought the software, it was easy to implement. And along the way, you helped me during that implementation. And I had questions and I needed to do some configurations or extensions, and that was easy to do and perform. We got up and running really quick. Um, you helped me with my training and documentation. Um, there were some pain points along the way, but it was really easy to pick up the phone and, and call someone and get my answers. And along the way, as you're doing these releases and these updates, the customer is getting more engaged, is going to you know um, software functions and events and wants to know more. And eventually, hopefully, can speak the praise of going, this software and this provider, I recommend them in the market, customer experience, which is like, 
you know, I, I think most um, vendors look at it as the NPS, which is like, you know, how high is the NPS, like the lovability of the vendor. And it has all these facets and all this criteria. That's how I phrase up the net, the net promoter score. Is that what you're talking about? The Yeah. Net pro- yeah. Promo- promoter score. Thanks for that. I, there's tons yeah. of acronyms. Right. <laughs> um, now the employee experience, I think is, is, is lives between the two of those, at least from my perspective. And that has everything to do with is can the employee log into a system? And usually that is framed around human capital management or HR software, HR tooling. Hmm. Um, and it's easy to update my profile, have a change, a change of life. I got married, had a baby, got divorced, whatever it may have been. Um, and you know, it's, it's helping me for knowledge base, knowledge sharing. Um, hopefully it can help me. How, how am I going to better my career? Uh, what kind of certifications do I need or criteria do I need to meet? Um, you know, it's the speeds and feeds of recruiting, you name it, employee experience. Um, and at times I think we see those things in the market as polar opposites between what is an ERP enterprise resource planning tool and the user experience there. And what does it mean for the employee experience and the user experience there? And I think that the closer that those can merge and blend, the better the uh, total package is going to be from the vendor uh, to the customer. Mm. Um, And at least that's the way we're looking at it. Um, Interesting. So I hope that I hope that answers it. Um, Yeah, you could definitely chat, Jen, (laughs) chat GPT. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's super interesting because those are three buzzwords you hear a lot, you know, UX, CX, and EX. So it's good to kind of see how they, how they tie together. There's some Venn diagrams. I think there's some Venn diagrams on that too. Where do they overlap? Who's at the center of it? Um, So definitely something worth researching and then forming your own opinion on what it means. If you have to author it or if you're part of the vendor or you're, you know, making the software, it's how you look at it. Yeah. Now you you alluded earlier you you sort of you sort of uh, glossed over an important point that I want to come back to which is the um, and I don't mean glossed over in a bad way I'm sorry that came out that came out of my mouth wrong <laughs> I don't mean you glossed over it you touched on something I want to dive into deeper how about that yeah um, sure yeah so it was um, you were talking about how user design and user experience oftentimes I, I I forgot the exact words you said but oftentimes that gets judged you judge a book by its cover I think is what you said. Mm-hmm. And can you tell me how, how does your work and the user experience, how does that influence for better or for worse organizations um, assessment or evaluation of potential software options? In other words, does it help you sell I, more? Is Infor selling more software, do you think, as a result of this user experience that you've created with your team? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, look, you know, you from, if you look at the lengthy sales cycle of what, a typical uh, ERP contract is, and you look at, you know, if uh, if someone's in the market for it, and they're looking at various vendors, um, you definitely do judge a book by its cover. And I know I remember saying that when you were there in New Orleans with me. And right. what I mean by that is, um, that's kind of like looking at something face value, which mm-hmm. is um, first impressions matter. That's basically right. what it means. So just like you have a guest, if you have someone coming over your house or your apartment or whatever, you know, you might have a side door. You could probably get into the house through the garage if you have a garage. But what do you do? Usually 
bring them through the main door, the entrance. It's the foyer. And right. it's supposed to put on my, my nonna, you know, because I'm Italian. She'd say, you know, Nuncio, you got to make sure you put on a nice figure. What she meant was you got to show up. You got to dress the part. Um, you got to you got to be um, approachable and, um, you know, it's put your best face forward, so to speak, mm. in layman's terms. So I think uh, that's where that's what I meant by the modern affordances earlier in this in this conversation around the user interface. Mm. It's what it looks like. OK, and those matter early in the sales cycle because you're just looking at it and you're going, I want to know more. Mm -hmm. Or you read that it, it's a leader in this and this, and it has this deep functionality I was looking for, but what does it look like? Right. It's just, you know, we're creatures of visual uh, criteria and, and judgment. I, 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 you know, it, it might sound like very superficial, but it, the veneer matters. It yeah, just it's, does. It's, it's the reality. And everybody should just, <laughs> yeah, everybody should just own it. Right. Um, so, so that's that part, right? But when you get deeper into the sales cycle, it has everything to do with the speeds and feeds of the user experience. Is this how, how snappy is the software is? Does it load quick? Can I, can I navigate to something really quick? Does it make sense? Um, if I'm trying to satisfy these two or three primary user roles or user types, do they see value in this? Do I want them to be part of that judging criteria and, and get, let them get a taste for it? That's where the user experience like the real actual like information architecture, the performance, the intuitiveness of the application, that's where that really starts to elevate up. So you get, you get past the veneer, so to speak. Um, that's how I would answer that and look at it. But you never get to say the next sentence, in my opinion, or go past the foyer if it doesn't look good. Right. And, um, you got to do it. So I remember sharing that with you. We did some profound information architecture work and new navigation paradigms um, in some of our ERP, in our ERP for services cloud, which covers like public sector, healthcare. Um, and we could have done it with the same navigation structure and component that we had, like we've had for four or five years. We still could have done it. Mm -hmm. But I remember when we were having this conversation with um, the dev leader at the time and the head of product management, I was like, listen, doesn't matter if we did it. And yeah, it's going to be awesome and it's going to work. And it's definitely going to fulfill the promise of modularity and, you know, composable ERP, which is a marketing term, but, mm -hmm. you know, in design modules, more modules, less monoliths, so to speak. Right. I was like, but if we do not change the way it looks, and the, and, and the interaction design of it, you know, if a user hovers or clicks, what happens, how does it behave? Then no one's going to think we changed anything. That's what we said. Right. So that is a success criteria for us to do this deep IA work. If it doesn't look different and engage with the user, interact in a different manner, then no one's going to know it happened. Right. So that's why I meant number one, you gotta always focus on what it looks like. Um, and that at times is very challenging when you're trying to push large systematic change and you're trying to get massive volumes of adoption. Um, you can get a lot of backlash there. Uh, so it has, a, it takes a lot of design enablement um, right. that you have to account for, for the yeah. change. Yeah.
We're here with Noons from Infor talking about the role of user experience in digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. I'm excited to share our newly released 2024 Digital Enterprise Operations Report. This free download is available on the Third Stage website at thirdstage-consulting.com. This report is truly packed full of technology independent and agnostic insights for your project to ensure that you're strategically optimized for success. Download your copy today with the QR code in front of me or visit our website for more details. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 145. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday by going to transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can find the video versions on various platforms at that website. You can also find the audio-only versions on different platforms at that same website as well. So just go to transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can see all the past episodes that you may have missed and uh, see upcoming episodes as well. So be sure to check that out. We're here in the midst of a conversation with Noon from Infor talking about the role of user experience in digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. How do enterprise tech buyers, you know, if I'm an organization or I'm part of a project team that's evaluating potential technology options, and I've got my over on one hand, I've got my checklist of hundreds or even thousands of functional business requirements. Can the software do A, B, and C? Sort of yes or no. And then over here, you've got this user design stuff, which is adding a little bit of gray to that evaluation, which is, yeah, it does it, but it's really hard to navigate, or it sort of does it, not maybe not as ideal as we want it to, but it's really easy to navigate. It's going to be easier for the user to figure out. So how do you, how do you translate all the stuff you're talking about? How do you, how can you translate that into actionable, measurable criteria for evaluating software? And how do you prioritize that against the more functional focused requirements that, that we're also used to? Yeah, sure. No, that's a, that's a great question. And, um, you know, maybe there could be a follow-up where we can list out like the top 10 of those because the, the, the KPIs and the success criteria could be very profound, meaning it could be very dense. Mm -hmm. Um, but some recommendations that I would have is if it meets, if it meets the feature functionality requirement, that deep list, you're going like, I have a hundred plus things this needs to do and vendor A can do it and vendor B can do it. The first success criteria then is without thinking of your very tenured and super business knowledge users, you have to think about like the future because the life cycle of these things is very long. Let's just go into three, five, seven, ten 10 years. Mm. You're signing on this like relationship with this vendor. Um, I would basically ask myself if someone was doing a changing career, if someone is fresh out of school, what's the face value of it? Would they go, this meets a modern business application software user interface? That's a first success criteria, I would say. Mm. And it doesn't need to be everywhere. And I think that that's where at times enterprise providers, they get dinged. I know we have in the past for full transparency, but we're addressing it. Um, it's how you tell it's how you engage in that story and how you explain that you can't change everything. You want to do the things that add the most value to the most users, largest base. 
And you want to navigate and scale that change over time, especially in the user interface. So it brings everybody along with them. But this is the way you do it with newer tenured users. This is how you do it with deeper, more knowledge-based tenured users. We call them like uh, super or power users to casual or lightweight users. That's mm -hmm. how we we classify it in our culture. Right. Um, so first one would definitely be the interface. The next thing I think has everything to do with uh, speed and performance. And I think that we take for granted how quick and profound Gmail is or you know, like, uh, uh, let me say, uh, like Office 365, these things load quick, they perform quick, and etc. Um, but I would really test it with large data. Um, so this is like deep data records, because some stuff I still can't believe a user needs to see all these things in some of our ERPs. I can't, it's so profound. Right. But it's like, how quick does it load? And in there, um, does it do progressive disclosure? or do lazy loading. These are some uh, design terms, which is I can load a hundred records and I can scroll to like 80 and then it loads the next hundred. Or does it have to do batch processing or does the user have to click to load all those things? To me, those are dings. Those mm. are dings. They're not positive, those are cons. Right. Um, I look at uh, page structure and information architecture. You know, Navigation is really important when it comes to, um, especially in ERP and the modules that go around it. That's how we look at it in our cloud suites. Um, so navigation would be another KPI for me. Terminology is another KPI. Like, do I need a PhD to understand what this rec ID and item number is, or can I speak in, in human terms or do a simple lookup and have it, you know, recall or do an exact match to what this is? That would be a success criteria for me. Um, but mm -hmm. the one big caveat that I would add, and then I promise you I'll shut up, um, <laughs> Because this one, I'm very passionate on this because I think that we just look at the face value. We know, I know this is contradictory, but just understand it looks good. And if it looks good, it should perform really good. But at times, something that is hyper performant and feature rich, and let's just say future proof mm. might not always look good. And mm. you have to balance it. Yeah, because that might be okay. There might be other ways to do it. So um, I would tell you a reco for anyone that is purchasing is to make sure that you're doing your judging criteria and you have those two opposite sides in the ability to have decision rights or voting rights on who you select. Early tenured, long tenured. That would be the first. Make sure you have that as part of the criteria. The second one is um, don't put yourself into a corner because something just looks really good and it seems really intuitive, but it might not deliver on the longer term success of where the business needs to go, which I know is probably some of in our competitive space, not naming names. Um, and, and you really want to make sure you're looking towards the future. Right. And if you see a different way of doing things and that face value is delivered, then you have to have the confidence and the conviction that that company is going to fulfill that promise and is going to scale it out as much and as fast and as best as they possibly can. And Gen AI is going to take a lot of, a lot of the, uh, the lift at times. So I think that these ERP vendors, us and others, I think we're going to have to see a very profound shift. Um, and that consumer greatness that you're saying 
I think we're going to be able to leapfrog it given the data density that we have, the richness of business process and the connectivity and extensibility. Um, I think it could be really the second coming of what ERP really is in a more focused and module based uh, solution. Right. Right. Here's a, that's a great, great explanation and great, great overview. Um, here's a follow-up question that sort of ties into this. Something you said earlier, this is from Dan on LinkedIn, who I happen to know is part of the Infor ecosystem. And he said, this mm. is fantastic. Nunzio, did, did you do the same UX exercise with the manufacturing ERP as you did for healthcare and government cloud suites? Okay. Maybe I'll, that's a I good could, question. Me, could I add one little caveat to that or maybe broaden it a little bit? I, I just wonder with sure. Infor's, with Infor's, composable ERP modular platform based strategy. And I'm, I'm, I apologize to your marketing people and your salespeople, but I, I may have butchered your, <laughs> your, the preferred messaging of what your uh, strategy is, but I, I view Infor's strategy is very focused on that composable ERP, building a platform, not just one single system that can do everything, but more of a, a platform. How does that, this UX, all this UX stuff you're talking about, how does that, does that get more complicated? Because now you're talking about different systems. Like Dan says, you've got, Healthcare, yeah. cloud suite, government, uh, manufacturing. How, how do you address that in a composable ERP? It's super. Yeah, it's it's super complex. Like, let's just say it. Um, but that's actually what our differentiator is in the market. Um, you know, the industry specificity and these very deep, rich um, applications that really solve specific uh, business and, and user need. So I would tell you, this is the this is the simplest way that our team looks at it. It's not a one size fits all. Boom. Now, what does that mean? Um, you can have a design system, which is a basic set of design standards, um, standards that not only uh, deliver and articulate the way in which to lay out the software, how to organize it, the, the look and feel of it, et cetera. But go back to it's not a one size fits all. So what that means is you need to have a lot of variability or what we call variants of something. Um, and when you go to apply it, let's just use this module navigation that I was using earlier as a use case. When you go to apply it, it it's not like what it does in Dan's point. You did this in services. Did you do it in manufacturing? It's not one-to-one. -one. It's not mm -hmm. binary in that transaction. So you have to understand, you have to understand how the users are using the system now. And it actually is very different than our services section. Um, but it doesn't mean that you don't lose sight of the uh, top guiding principles or the core tenets in the why you were doing this thing. So ex some examples that we had were um, names need to be very simple and easy to digest. And I don't need like a dictionary to understand what they are. Right. That was one of them. Right. The next one is uh, the, the navigation tree. I don't want to see 75 links. I don't want to see 75 links. I want to see, Ideally seven, no more than 10. Hmm. And if you got to squeak by, I'll let you go to 13, but like now we're passing thresholds. So right. these were, these like these methodologies, these metaphors is the way that our team engaged with product development and um, product management. And that's how we made this profound shift in the services cloud. Hmm. So to answer Dan's question, yes, the manufacturing uh, suites, they're on the roadmap. We just started doing the work. It should be done at least can, uh, demonstrable and starting to be consumed at a module level by this time next year, hmm. because it takes a lot of work. But 
what you see in services cloud is not going to be one-to-one to the way we do it in manufacturing. And that's because Infor's differentiator and IP is industry specificity, and it can't be a one size fits all. Hmm. And that's what we learned through our, through our design team. We created a design system that was supposed to be a one size fits all. And it got us to baseline consistency, but it didn't really deliver on the cohesiveness of hmm. what it means to have multiple things come together in a very meaningful way. So that's the shift that we did. Um, so a term to look up, you could look up design systems and then you could look up subsystems, which means there's a root and they branch off to it and it it's translated differently given you know that application or who's consuming it. And that's the thing that we've uh, we've definitely pivoted on um, and we're gonna be doing more of here at M4. Hmm. Very cool. So so just to summarize then, if I'm a if I'm a buyer of potential technology or I'm part of a team that's going through digital transformation of any sort, um, what sort of closing advice, if you had to summarize everything we just talked about here today and sort of bring it back up to the the highest level, you know, what, what sort of closing advice would you have for people in terms of how they think about user experience in their digital transformations? I know it's a very broad question. It's might be difficult mm. to answer, but how would you summarize that? So without, let's get past the face. Okay. Cause uh, you know, you judge a book by its cover. Yes, we talked about it. And yes, it needs to look good. Okay. But it really needs to deliver on what the business is asking for. And I think that trumps at the highest level, what it looks like, even though that matters to get buy-in and get acclimation at the business. User adoption. So the things that I, yeah, user adoption, it's all those pieces. Um, but I think the first thing that matters the most is I'm making a, a, a very large decision. Um, it's going to come with a lot of change internal for my department and um, who my department serves, right? The employee base, the user base, the constituents. So I think it's, it's not a feature functionality conversation, but it's more around future proofing. And that's a term that we've been using in our organization. So way I look at that as UX perspective is integrations and extensibility. Those would be the way that I would, honestly, I would put that as number one in the list hmm. from a UX perspective. And that's because I would tell you, sure, you can mandate the way in which a given role wants to work and you can mandate what systems and tools they have access to, but the way that they compose and aggregate that to the way they want to digest and perceive information and, 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 uh, perform a task you get into like different shades or gradients of it, mm. even though they might be the same role. So integrations and extensibility is really important because you want to amplify user personalization um, because that increases user satisfaction. So personalization is I want to change things. I want to alter the layout um, or you delivered me this mobile uh, application, but I only want to see these two or three things. I don't want to see everything else. That to right. me is noise. I'm good. I got people for that, you know, so to speak. So integration extensibility, really important. I would put that number one on the UX, which is then number two. I would look at how well can configuration be handled um, in an application that you might not potentially want to integrate other things or extend to other things. So configuration to me is number two. So integration extensibility, configuration number two. Hmm. Um, and that's because right there, 
at those steps, whoa, baby, in my opinion, you have a future-proof solution, which means I can solve for things as they occur and where they come without having to always account for what am I getting right now? Mm. Like, what am I buying right now? Um, then I get into number three would be, how does it look? And if I have to take advantage of configuration and the integration extensibility of the solution, are there ways for me to orchestrate and assemble in a meaningful way? Um, because that right there solves the earlier tenured or new tenured employee base. And it gives you a story to tell and speeds and feeds to get tenured and hyper rich knowledge users to potentially start seeing a new way to do work. Mm. And that's why I would sum up those as the top three. Interesting. That's very cool. Yeah, that's a great, a great summary and, and thing to think about. And I love how you, you've done a good job of framing user experience and all the stuff we've talked about today. You're framing it in the context of usability and functionality and what the software can do in that future proof mindset that a lot of organizations are, are striving for. Um, so I love how you, how you talked about the, the interaction between the two. So in other words, it's, you know, it needs to look good, but it also has to do what you want it to do. And you have to know that going forward in the future, you're going to be able to solve those problems. And, and user adoption longer term is going to, is going to work well for your organization. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you, Noon. Great conversation. Really appreciate having you here today. Uh, first time on the show and hopefully not the last. So we'd love to have you back on the show at some point to dive into some of these topics in more detail. I've got a lot more to cover. In fact, we're going to debrief on a couple of the points that he made here in just a moment, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 145. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm your host here today. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world to reach the third stage of digital transformation success. And you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday by going to transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also go to that same website, transformationgroundcontrol.com, to see uh, past episodes as well. So 144 episodes before this one that you may have missed. You can see any or all of them by going to that website and you can browse through and uh, sort of cherry pick the ones you might want to see that you may have missed in the past. So be sure to check it out there. And thank you for listening here today. So we just had a noon from Infor on the show talking about user design, user experience. We also talked about customer experience, of course, and uh, employee experience, all of which are, as he mentioned, are very much interrelated. Uh, but I thought it was a great conversation because it's something we, we just don't talk about much on the show. And me as a consultant, I, I would argue um, it's probably a blind spot of mine. It's not something that I think a lot about, largely because I'm just not, in some ways, I'm not a visually creative person. 
and I, I tend to be more black and white in terms of just get the job done regardless of you know how how the system works but that's not the right answer of course i'm not a person that needs to be using the software every day so that doesn't make sense for most organizations to take that approach but what i love about the conversation that we had here is that not only is he bringing light to the fact that user experience is so important but he he really i think did a nice job explaining what user experience means and some of the things you you have to think about and not only the nuances of what he has to think about as a user design guy but also what you as an organization or a digital transformation project team might be thinking about or need to think about as it relates to user experience. Because I think one one weakness that I think a lot of organizations, a lot of consultants have is that they view the evaluation of potential technology options as more of a feature or function evaluation. So we go through our checklist of all the hundreds of business requirements we might have defined for our organization, but we don't always necessarily look deeply into how how easy is that software to use? Is it going to be intuitive? Are we going to get some good user adoption because it's easy to use and it fits, you know, the workforce or the demographics of the workforce? So those are the kinds of things that you could argue are maybe even more important. I know he he mentioned in the interview that user experience or, or that functionality should trump user experience. But he also said, all things being equal, if you had two vendors that can do everything you need them to do, then the user experience might be the big deciding factor, the big tiebreaker, if you will. And so I think it brings up another point, which is a lot of times when you're evaluating systems, you put together your business requirements and you put those business requirements into an RFP, a request for proposal. You send that request for proposal to vendors. Vendors respond on whether or not their software can do the things you want it to do. Most of the time, it ends up being a yes, no answer. It's yes, it can do it, or no, it can't. And by the way, most of the time, it's yes. I mean, you, you send an RFP to a vendor, most of the time they're going to say, yes, our software can do 99% of what you want it to do. What they don't tell you, though, is how well it does it. And so, in other words, it's not just a yes, no answer. It's on a continuum. How well does the software do it? And in that gray area or in that continuum, the how well a software can do something is largely based on user experience. So I think that's something that you know you have to think about as you're evaluating the functionality of software is also looking at it through the lens of, Yes, it can do it, but if it's really hard or difficult for a user to figure out how to get it to do what you want it to do, then you have to sort of water down your response or, or temper your enthusiasm for that competency maybe a little bit more. Having said that, on the flip side, if you've got a software that looks really good and looks really sexy, easy to use, but behind the scenes and underneath the covers, it can't do a lot of the functions you need it to do, then that doesn't matter either. So you, ideally, you, know, you want the best of both worlds, but... The key is to evaluate software in the context of not just functionality, but the usability of the software. And we, we didn't talk a lot about it, and I think we could probably spend a whole interview just talking about this one topic. But user experience is heavily um, tied to user adoption and the, the success of your change initiative. In other words, if it's a software that is easier to use, you're just going to get better adoption. You're going to get people using the software the way it was meant to be used. And you're going to get ultimately the business value out of it that that is to be expected from the software. So just a few considerations there that I think are, are super interesting. And, and uh, again, a lot of organizations don't think about it consciously when they are evaluating potential systems. They get too caught up in the checklist of business requirements without considering the, the user experience, the customer experience, and the overall um, design of the software. So very cool stuff. And he's definitely a pioneer in the space. And, and I think... Uh, 
you know, third stage, first of all, is not affiliated with Infor, but I do think Infor is doing a great job on the user design side of things, as well as building out platforms that can be used by multiple systems um, as well. So they've got some pretty pretty unique strategies that are different. Um, not always not always best for your organization, but they're different than what a lot of vendors are doing. So very cool to have him on the show and uh, glad, to, glad to have him and hope to have him on again in the future as well. So great stuff there. Um, we're going to shift gears and have our next guest on, uh, Kyler Cheatham and Amanda Patton from the Third Stage Consulting team. We're going to have them on talking about the importance of choosing the right implementation partner. So we're going to shift gears. We're not going to talk about technology and, and software specifically, but now we're going to talk about the implementation itself. Um, what are the ways that you need to evaluate potential implementation partners? What are the major considerations, the risks and the pitfalls, all that stuff we're going to talk about here with Amanda and Kyler here in just a moment. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back from with more Transformation Ground Control and uh, stick around for this interview where we talk about choosing the implementation partner for your digital transformation. So we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Just tell me what you've If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 145. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com, so be sure to check it out there. Both upcoming episodes and past episodes you can find there. The audio and video versions on all the different platforms that we stream and drop the episodes on, you can find it all at transformationgroundcontrol.com. So excited for our next guest. They've both been on the show many times, Kyler uh, co-host this podcast, so you've seen her face probably multiple times before, and Amanda Patton, who's a director at Third Stage Consulting, um, has also been on the show multiple times in the past, so you may recognize her as well, so good to have them both back. They're going to be on here uh, here in just a second talking about how to choose the right implementation partner for your digital transformation. We haven't talked a whole lot about this topic recently in the podcast, so we thought we'd have them on the show to talk about it. So with all that being said, I'll turn it over to you, Kyler, to chat with Amanda about how to choose the best implementation partner. We talk a lot about here at Third Stage. It's absolutely critical to select the right partners and to really understand the roles of each partners within your implementation or overall digital transformation project. So with that, I am very excited to welcome Amanda to our conversation today. So Amanda, can you tell our audience just a little bit about who you are, your background and your role here at Third Stage? Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks for having me. I am Amanda Patton. I am a director here at Third Stage, 
and I'm relatively new to this role, uh, but I have been working with Third Stage in multiple capacities as a senior consultant and manager for the past three years, three years and some change. Um, I come from the software vendor side um, where I did industry manager work and then also uh, analyst relations. And so I've got the advantage of getting to see things from all these different, you know, uh, vantage points. But as a director at Third Stage, uh, one of my main mandates is to um, leverage and grow our relationships with um, partners out in the ecosystem and uh, from a PMO perspective. And um, so, yeah, I, it's, it's a very interesting um, role to be in. And we are directing the work, I guess. So we're assembling the team, we're scoping the projects, we're selecting um, you know, partners, the client actually is selecting the partners, but we're helping them, advising them on uh, selecting not only the software vendor, but the partner who's going to help them implement it. Absolutely. And well, first and foremost, congratulations. And thank, thank you. you so much for joining our, our great team here. Um, I know you've been on some of our podcasts and in our thought leadership for a while now, but it's very exciting to welcome you formally um, as you are now kind of a leader um, on the third stage team. So we're very fortunate to have your, your background. And as you mentioned, you have this unique perspective on being on both sides from not only being on the vendor side of the business, which we have a variety of team members that were also understanding and having a deeper understanding of those advisory or alliance services um, and those relationships with partners that are, say, independent or technology agnostic, like third stage or just the overall partner situation and, um, and perspective. Uh, so, you know, with that, knowing that kind of your situation, how important would you say from a top line is it to understand the roles of each partner within an implementation project? Um, there's nothing more important <laughs> from my perspective, because if you don't plan um, and really sit down, slow down, take a breath um, and plan do the planning on the front end or you're gonna kind of pay for it later. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But regarding the question you just asked, it's very important that we all have a very clear scope. And I understand as third stage where my lane is, you understand as the vendor where your lane is, as the system integrator, um, so that we aren't competing or creating more work for the client. Um, and just also, so we have a seamless project, you know, we have, we have a, a, a clearly defined scope of work, which of course is flexible as the project moves forward. Um, but I say that if you skip that part, uh, you know, there's just gonna be a lot of confusion um, and maybe infighting or even competition that just doesn't need to happen. At the end of the day, we're all on the same team. We have all agreed to work hard together toward the outcome, which is a successful implementation for the client. Um, and so we've got to check our egos out the door and come in and all decide which parts of the project we are in charge of. Um, and then you need that type of that PMO, you know, vision. That, over, that kind of overarches and ties everything together. So I would say it's critical. Absolutely. And, you know, knowing um, what each role does is super important too. So say you are, you know, working with a client that's 
really in their phase zero era of planning their digital transformation. They're kind of just laying the groundwork, which is where we always recommend engaging an independent um, digital transformation coach so that you really can get into the strong foundation of project planning. So what are some um, some considerations you need to keep in mind when, quote unquote, interviewing potential implementation partners? The first thing I think is just kind of the obvious. Are they experts in that system? Um, do they have references? Do they have a good reputation? Have you talked to people who they've implemented for? Um, how did it go? Um, so that's obviously if we're interviewing anybody, a contractor for something at our house, like we're, we're going to want to talk to people. How did they do on your bathroom repair? <laughs> so that seems pretty obvious. But then um, you need to look at things like budget. You need to look at timeline. You need to look at cultural fit. Uh, do we get along? Do we work well together? Uh, do we all respect each other? Um, and I would say also part of the cultural fit, I guess a subset of that would be, um, you know, the client is in charge and people forget that, you know, um, and it's important. And we're always reminding our customers, our clients, um, this is your implementation. You determine the timeline, you determine the pace. And so making sure that you've got a vendor and a system integrator um, who is respectful of that and who will work with you instead of, um, you know, forcing timelines or products or things that you may or may not um, be on board with. So for me, I think those are the, you know, first of all, do you know what you're doing? <laughs> how good are you? How good are you at implementing the system? And then people overlook the cultural stuff, like a soft issue, like something that, oh, you know, it's whatever, we'll figure it out. It's really important. It's really important. And understanding kind of, I think a lot of misperceptions around that is you actually do have choices. Um, so can you talk about kind of options that you have when when looking at an implementation partner? How should you consider kind of making sure that you understand the landscape of the space and what partners you should look at engaging? I mean, you know, our favorite line is it depends, uh, yeah. but it depends because there are some systems like you know, well, I don't want to name names, but there are some where you have partners, you have an implementation partner on every corner for said system. Exactly. Yeah. So your, your search may be a little more overwhelming. And so for me, I think you need to um, get references and get referrals from people in your industry um, that you talk to. And that happens all the time where people are references or we, you know, it's like, okay, you're a mid-market manufacturer um, and you implemented this and you guys used this partner and they did a fantastic job. I would rather go on something like that um, than go out to the market and tell me and see what the marketing materials tell me who the top three implementers of that solution are. Right. I want to talk to a real person who's done that. So that would be that would be one thing. Um, I think also having a third party involved, whether it's third stage or someone else, 
um, to make sure that you have someone who is advocating for you, who has your back. Um, you know, I'm not saying anybody's malicious or trying to be a bad person, but like we all have self-interest that we're serving out in the world and vendors want to sell more software and implementers want to implement more software. Um, and so it's important that you've got somebody in the mix that will give you honest feedback. Um, and again, I just, I think word of mouth and talking to people. And a lot of times it's very interesting because these, uh, C-suite, you know, these executives that we work with, they will reach out to people, um, peers, competitors, even, <laughs> and, 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 and have conversations, you know, and in that conversation, they're usually going to get the, the good, bad and the ugly. Um, but I'd much rather have the, you know, a real live example, um, than going to some ranking system out on the internet um, that may or may not be true. <laughs> and just because they're the top implementer for that solution doesn't mean they're the top implementer for your organization. I think it's really important to talk to people in your industry around your size who may, who may need some of the same nuanced secret sauce type of stuff that your business is going to need. Um, that's my, that's my two cents. Oh yeah. And you said so much in there. Um, it's, I always call it a watch back. So if you are watching, definitely take that back and take it step by step. But there's, there's so much good information in there. One, you know, understanding that everyone has an agenda. Um, and I, I love how PC you are too. Like, you know, everyone has an agenda. Their, their job is to sell you software. Their job is to implement. That's how they make their money. That's how their business model runs. So no, they're not terrible people, but they do have an agenda of what that looks like. And we talk a lot, and it, the example you gave about kind of the different um, entities within the industry. We have D365, Microsoft Dynamics D365 or 365 as number one on our top 10 ERP systems. So there's a lot of great things about them. Another kind of drawback behind them or an issue we see is just the consistency in the marketplace because there are so many third-party resellers and you really need to make sure you get the right partner that not only fits your requirements, your needs, has the experience, um, and then also that referral muscle or that referral network that you really can engage and flex upon. We have a lot of businesses that we may work with through a PMO project that their direct competitor will then call us up and say, hey, we're looking to do X, Y, and Z. And we're like, wait, we thought the, you guys didn't like each other. And But knowing that you have that industry experience and that expertise in a similar business is just so critical to ensuring that 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 all makes sense. You know, one thing I really want to kind of dig into that you touched upon um, and expand upon is the cultural piece of it. And you had mentioned that that is kind of a soft metric. You know, if you have all of this extensive experience, but it may not be a culture fit, is that a huge red flag? Or is that just kind of a consideration that you say, mm, they may not jive with our team so much, but they do have, check all the boxes on the technical side. What's the balance there? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, if, if you, first of all, I have to be honest and say that it is not consistent. You might have a fantastic implementation with a direct, with a vendor or with a system integrator in Ohio 
And then you may six months later do a very similar implementation with the same vendor, same SI in California, and it's not good at all. Um, so that's one thing to know. They run by territories. Um, you can't pick your favorite team and have them do all your stuff every all over the world. Um, unfortunately, wherever they are, that's who's going to get deployed, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on where you're located. Um, and so I want to just say that, first of all, there's never any vendor or SI who always does a great job or always does a terrible job. It's just not that simple, for one thing. Um, for, for, so I'll give you an example. One of the implementations that I've done in the last couple of years, um, we had four vendors in the hunt. Um, RFPs came back, two of them kind of advanced, you know, into demos. And so they had their showdown. Um, and from a scoring perspective, these two vendors pretty much were neck and neck. Do you know what I mean? Um, and even in the negotiation phase, and we're talking about price, they, they got to where they were, you know, within very little money of each other, right? So at this point, you're looking at it like, this is a really tough one. And the client ended up going for the better cultural fit, right? Um, so that's an easier situation. But if you've got four vendors and it's narrowed down to three or two, one of them is like A plus and the rest of them are B or C, but the, the A plus is not a cultural fit. That's a, that's a tougher spot to be in, you know? Um, a couple of questions. So. I, the, the balance is, um, for me, really understanding that you're going to be in a kind of a marriage with this vendor. Um, this is a very long, long-term commitment with an ERP system, right? Or 10, 20, 30 years. I don't know. I'm, I'm not married, so I don't... Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding though, but really it is a relationship. So at some point, all these, the implementation team, all of us, everybody's going to roll off the project and then guess who's going to have to be in relationship together for a long time. So if it's, you know, irreconcilable, um, that's going to be a really big problem. The other thing is the sales team, maybe you don't get along really well with the sales team. Well, that's not who's going to be doing your implementation. So it's really hard. It's really hard to know. Um, you know, I've had instances before where certain vendors um, or SIs were borderline condescending because they're up on all the newest technology. They live and breathe the technology and it's all modern. And then you walk into a, a manufacturing facility where they've been running the same green screen legacy, legacy hotkey for 36 years. And they may not know a lot about technology, but they know more about manufacturing than anybody. And you've got some people, some vendors or SIs who are a little bit, you know, can be a little bit arrogant. Um, and that doesn't go over very well. And so again, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. But you have to also remember that sales team, once they close the deal, they're gone. They're on to the next. So it could be that you're going to get along great with professional services, you know, the implementation team or the SI or whoever. 
So I didn't really answer your question because it, it's it's a case by case. <laughs> I think it's very important. Really? No, you did. Our, our favorite answer. It depends because it truly does. And that's the point, as I always say, of those questions is really looking at that this is going to be your implementation. We're here with Amanda and Kyler from the Third Stage Consulting Team talking about how to choose the best implementation partner for your digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling with Third Stage Consulting and your host of Transformation Ground Control. I want to encourage you to read our Guide to Organizational Change Management. It's a free report or a free guide that we published. It's one that I actually wrote that talks about best practices and lessons learned as it relates to change management. So as you know, on this podcast, we cover a lot of stuff related to the human sides of change, organizational change management, including training, communications, org design, all kinds of stuff as it relates to change management. So if you're trying to learn more about change management or you're looking for more direction and ideas on how to get started on your change management strategy and your overall journey, be sure to check out this guide. You can read it by scanning the QR code on the screen in front of you or in the links below for this particular podcast episode. You can find a link to uh, take you to the page that will allow you to register to go ahead and download that and read it for free. So be sure to check it out. It's the Guide to Organizational Change Management uh, written by yours truly. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think and hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 145. You can find new episodes every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And we're here with Kyler and Amanda talking about how to choose the best implementation partner for your digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. And you touched a little bit on project ownership, um, but I wonder kind of as a follow-up to that question, if you could expand on the importance of internalizing project ownership. You mean with for the client or... Yes. So the importance, we talk a lot here at Third Stage about not losing yourself to what the vendor says or what your partner or implementation, because that can be really something that's difficult, right? They are the experts. You want to lean on their support. But in some level, if you get too entrenched, either from a resource perspective or from a monetary perspective, you can really be in, in that trouble point that you had kind of just touched on. So I want to kind of explain to the audience from your perspective of the importance of understanding the project ownership and the internalization of the overall strategy. I hope this doesn't sound self-serving, but I'm going to say it again. You need to have some type of um, neutral party involved, whether it's third stage or some other, like whoever that's not the client and it's not the vendor and it's not the system integrator. It's someone else who can kind of look at the whole big picture because what happens is if you're in manufacturing, let's say aerospace and defense, oil and gas, whatever, pick an industry, maybe you don't know a lot about ERP software. And so it's very easy to defer all of your decisions to the experts, the vendors, the SIs, whatever. The problem with that is if somebody's selling you more than you need or telling you the software does XYZ and maybe it doesn't 
do it exactly the way without $30,000 worth of customizations, let's say, like, these are the things that you, you can easily be, and I hate to make it sound like vendors or anybody are doing anything bad, but it's easy to be manipulated or misled or sold, sold to. Um, what we say a lot to clients is you don't need that yet. You're not ready for that type of functionality. That's a phase three thing. Let's, let's stay focused over here. Let's keep the scope and the budget, you know, so that would be, you know, for me, the most important part, because if you don't, the project could run away without you. <laughs> like I have seen that where clients find themselves on this merry-go-round and they can't get off of it because they sort of handed the keys over to the system integrator or the vendor or whatever. Um, and then you've got your, you've got scope creep, you're over budget, you've got all these customizations that you've got to now maintain. Um, and then later you find out maybe you didn't even need those customizations uh, necessarily. So that's why it's important. You've got to have the ownership, the steering committee, the, the leadership, the business process owners at every single level of the organization have got to have a seat at the table. Um, and sometimes, all, well, all the time, every one of these, these companies are doing their day job. They're really busy, you know? And so sometimes it's easier to defer or to say, oh, we don't really know. You guys just, you know, tell us what's best practice. You know, what do other oil and gas companies do type of deal? Um, I, that's a mistake, you know? You need to know your process and your people have to have a seat at the table to say, well, that may be best practice for the industry, but that's not how we do it. Um, and can the software meet us where we are in this area? So, yeah, it's it's really it's really really important. And I think a lot of a lot of times um, people are just too trusting. That's one of the reasons why project management and PMO is so important because every move that anyone makes needs to be documented. Um, a lot of times, especially being on, you know, we've been involved in many expert witness, documentation is key. And so if you're from a PMO perspective, any change order, anytime something on the critical path gets into the yellow zone and it's communicated to the SI or the vendor and it's not handled in a timely manner, which is which is their end of the, the deal, right? They're part of the contract. Um, and as we know, anytime you want to get out of a contract, it can get pretty litigious. And that's never where we want to go. Um, but those are resources that we, you know, have had to use that clients have had to use. Um, so I would say as just an add on to that is just to make sure that you're documenting um, everything, you know, the conversations, the changes, and um, obviously correspondence with vendors and system integrators. Um, and that if things aren't being delivered that were it, part of your contract, uh, part of their scope of work, then, you know, you need to have a paper trail showing that. Well, and that is, that's so easy to do, especially if you actually, you know, made a financial commitment and you feel as though your statement of work and contract lays out all of the different areas in which this supportive relationship will be. But if you don't have kind of that insurance policy, as we call it, of those independent advisors that are, are dedicated to your business goals, their success is going right. to be your success in that, in that piece. Right. Then you really need um, that ability to kind of manage through that. So I know you touched a little bit on kind of 
third stage PMO or having an independent um, and technology agnostic PMO. But we kind of touched on some of our recent thought leadership of just not only the saturation of niche products, of interoperability products, of platform-based, all of these different solutions. So you have all of that, but then you also have all of these agendas um, and different pieces that you're managing. So our PMO, we call it mission control, is our mission control here kind of takes that all, think of a mission control for a rocket ship and has kind of the control levelers of the project all in one place. So can you talk a little bit about what that looks like and the importance of having that kind of one lighthouse um, of a PMO resource on a project? We all come in with our own plan, right? Client knows what they're looking for. Vendor, Everybody has their own um, thing. And it's like, if I'm building a house um, and I have... 17 contractors handling their specialty area. Um, I need a foreman. I need a GC to kind of see everything together, the budget, the timeline, quality of the deliverables and the, you know, making sure that things like, and I'll switch back to the analogy of, you know, away from the house building and toward, you know, what we do, uh, which is, you know, data migration and, training and, uh, you know, are we resourcing this project appropriately? Well, what if I'm only looking at that through the third stage lens? What if I'm only looking at it through the software vendor lens or the SI lens or the client lens? Well, that's what happens, right? Like we want to say that we're looking at the big picture, but when you get up caught up in the minutia of, of an implementation, um, it's easy to lose sight of the big picture and to, to really drill, because we have deliverables, we have demo, we have all kinds of stuff going on. We're really busy and it, it gets it gets hard to keep a big you know picture view. Um, and so to answer your question, we are gonna look at all of that. We're gonna manage really program management because we're managing many, many projects within a project. Um, and we're neutral, right, again, we don't have an agenda. We don't care who you go with from a vendor or an SI perspective, as long as they make you happy <laughs> as the client. You know, does it fit your business requirements, your timeline, your budget, your culture? Um, will you achieve the business outcomes that you're setting out to achieve? Like, that's what we care about. Um, so for me, you know, it's, it's easy to get off into rabbit holes because these things get very complicated. They, they really do. And then you're bringing in other bolt-ons and you've got a data migration team over here and you've got, it just, it gets out of control very quickly. And so you really need somebody who's looking at the whole, um, the whole part and calling out risks before they turn into issues, right? Um, not just in our little world of third stage, but in the whole world of the project. And there's, you know, um, and it's cool because we, we're not seen as the good cop or the bad cop or the, it's, we're just sort of the neutral observer, right? We're doing things, we're managing things, we're alerting to risk and we're, and we're planning and all that kind of stuff. But if we say, Hey, what's going on over here? 
Um, if this falls behind, these other seven things are going to fall behind. It doesn't feel like it's not like an attack or anything. It's just an observation. That's what we're doing. That's why we're there. That's what PMO does. So. Absolutely. And having a resource that has that 10,000 foot view of the project, because a lot of times you can get so hyper focused as an internal team on one area that's in the green. This is going awesome. But then shifting over to maybe an organizational assessment or uh, a different piece in which you're like, oh, this is not actually performing at the level that we wanted it to perform at but investing in that resource that can kind of see and then manage two partners and have the insight to managing two partners. Cause it's one thing, you know, to feel as though you have that internal capability of, Oh, I can manage outside vendors. That's a very normal process within our business, but have you done it for an actual software implementation? Because there's nuances to that. You mentioned something like data migration, which is a huge piece of a digital transformation. And you know, that's that's something that that you need to at least have that phase zero side of and that implementation plan around, but also being able to execute it in the way that, you know, you're going to have that visibility. Um, so I think that, you know, that's really, really critical um, to understanding that. And admission control is something a lot of times we do post-election just because we've had such a great relationship with a client or our partners and just moving through the synergy of the group. Um, we call it, you know, getting the band back together type of thing. So knowing the synergistics that we bring to it, and I know you know this well, Amanda, because you're not only one of our most top requested resources, but you also, you know, you're not to be trifled with on the the vendor side, right? Um, so can you kind of talk about the the way that third stage kind of works with our different partners in in that area and the importance of, you know, not only setting expectations, but having this energy to innovate and solve problems, solve critical problems that are going to come up 100% of the time within a digital transformation project. My loyalty is always to the client. And I, as long as I remember that, um, that makes my job, e well, not easy, but it makes my job clear. I know I need to remember what my um, objective is and I need to keep my ear close to the ground enough to know when something isn't right across all the partners and all the projects and all the subsets of projects and all the things, but not be in the weeds. I've got to also be able to see, you know, the big picture. And then we have to be willing to be creative. We have to be willing to pivot uh, if something isn't working, um, we have to be able to have tough conversations um, with the client sometimes or with the vendor or the SI. We are looking for um, problems, identifying problems before they become, you know, especially critical path, right? Before they have the ability to derail the project from any perspective, time, money, um, you know, accomplishing what the client wants. And when we see inconsistencies between what was sold and what is being delivered um, or anything else that causes issues for the client, you know, we are their advocate. Um, because again, that relationship between the vendor and the client is going to be long-term. That's a marriage that's going to go on long after we're, you know, there. 
And so they need to learn how to work through their problems, through their disagreements, um, and make changes as necessary. But you've got to be willing to be creative too, um, and to say no, and to push back, and to say, we that's not going to work for us. And you hear it all the time in Eric's videos and different people, you know, saying, do not let software squish you into some kind of box. Um, at the end of the day, probably 80% of the tech of the functionality is the same <laughs> like in most of these year, you know, but then it depends, right? Are you a process manufacturer? Are you in apparel? Are you, what are, what is it that you're doing? And you need that, that, that specialty sometimes. And sometimes it's not with the vendor who's put it, who's standing up your ERP system. Sometimes it is some type of, you know, specialty uh, composable ERP as we've been talking about a lot. Um, and again, an SI, a vendor may have their plan for you when they come in and that may not, that may not be the best plan. Um, so I think having the ability and the confidence to speak up for your business and say, we appreciate your advice and we understand what you're saying, but for us, we're not going to change this process. We're going to keep this process the way it is. And we need your software to accommodate us instead of the other way around. Um, and then have somebody to have your back, right? Third stage, have, have somebody to um, enforce that and to make sure that the client is protected. Um, and nine times out of 10, everybody plays very nicely together. But when they don't, we can deal with that too. Yeah, help to troubleshoot. I think one of our clients said it great in a case study we did of really healing the relationship. If there is a relationship you're really struggling with, third stage a lot of times can come in and help triage that. That's the goal, right? To keep everyone together and, and to move timelines, um, you know, or make the project healthy again. Um, so the final thoughts here, Amanda, that I want to ask you about is if you do feel as though you're in a situation where the partner is not working, as kind of a conclusion to this conversation, what are some things you can do as a business to address that when you have um, an actual partner that's that may not be in the best standing or you don't feel as though you have that synergy with them? What are some troubleshooting tactics? The first thing I would I would advise is to meet with your neutral advisors, um, you know, like like when we're involved and this comes up, it's an internal, it's a conversation with the client and us of, of let's just really take stock of what's going on um, so that we understand. Sometimes it could be the team, the specific team uh, for that SI. Other times, maybe it's just the SI in general that it's just not gonna, you know, work. And then you've got to start thinking about, you know, renegotiating or, or getting out of certain agreements um, that that can get that can get pretty complicated pretty quickly. I haven't been involved in too many of those. Generally, when that comes up, we are able to salvage the relationship and to get back on track. We may need to switch out some people we may need to make some changes on a team level. Um, but, you know, that would be my first advice is to, you know, consult with 
us first, and then maybe we go talk to them, to the vendor or the SI on the client's behalf. Um, but it really just depends on what the problem is. What are the problems? What's what's the issue? Sometimes it can be salvaged and um, sometimes maybe not. But when you're in when you enter into contracts with people, um, you know, it's not always easy to untangle from them. All right. Thank you, Kyler and Amanda. Great conversation. Great stuff. Uh, really appreciate the conversation there and a lot of good considerations that you guys talked about there that I think is super important. Uh, you know, everything from uh, the cultural fit, uh, the experience level of the organization, how much the implementation partner is going to cost, how flexible they are, how much they can customize the solution for your needs, um, how collaborative they are, how, how they provide feedback. A lot of different threads that you guys pulled on there were super interesting. And, um, you know, I think the things that, um, that really stuck out and jumped out from hearing that conversation is that there's no one-dimensional way that makes sense to, to evaluate potential implementation partners. In other words, there's not just one criteria you want to look at. A, a lot of times organizations want to know how experienced is this implementation partner in deploying product A, B, or C. That's an important consideration, but that's only one of many considerations. You also have to look at, is this an implementation partner that fits well with my organization, with my team? Is it someone I can work well with in the longer term? Um, am I going to be an important client to this implementation partner? You know, you have to find the balance between you know, a, a, an implementation partner that's big enough that has the breadth of resources and the skills that you need, but they're not so big that you're not maybe as important of a, of a client to them. So that's a consideration as well. You want to find that balance between sort of scale and breadth, but also having the the niche focus that gives you the attention that you deserve as, as an organization. Um, those are some of the things there that you want to think about. And then also, even if you found the perfect or the ideal implementation partner for your organization, you also, you also have to look at what doesn't that implementation partner do well. And this is really important too, because a lot of organizations get so enamored by a certain implementation partner and they think, okay, this is my silver bullet. This is my answer. And this is the direction we're going to go. And we're going to delegate everything or outsource everything to that implementation partner. And, you know, most implementation partners are going to love that if you do that, because they're going to make more revenue and they're going to be more important to you, uh, as a, as a, uh, vendor. But what you have to understand is that most implementation partners have strengths in deploying technology, but they don't have strengths typically in managing change and training your team on how to deploy technologies, uh, being creative about how to improve business processes, how to tie their system into other legacy systems or other third-party bolt-ons you might be deploying, um, how to migrate data. Those are all things that software vendors and implementation, implementation partners are generally not good at or as good at as they are at deploying their technology that they focus on. So it's just as important to not only evaluate what they're good at, but also understand what they're not good at so that you can augment that implementation partner with other implementation resources that will be critical to making the project successful. So, you know, if you find a good implementation partner that's a great fit from the technological work stream perspective, great, go with it, but then figure out how are you gonna address the overall program management, which most implementation partners aren't very good at that. They're good at managing their work stream, their technical work stream, but they're not good at managing an entire digital transformation program. So how are you gonna address that program management? How are you gonna address change management, training, um, all the communications that needs to happen, the process improvement, the arch architecture, the data integration, all that stuff typically is stuff that needs to happen, but most implementation partners aren't gonna do that. So in addition to finding the right implementation partner, you also wanna find 
what do you need to augment that implementation partner with? And that's certainly an area where we help our clients at third stage is we help our clients fill in those gaps and sort of not do, we don't do directly what an implementation partner does, but we do things that they don't do, but clients need to be successful. And that's really really where we focus our implementation services. So uh, be sure you, you understand that and know what it is you're looking for and what you need and what your implementation partner can and can't provide before you sort of draw a line in the sand and confirm and, and uh, validate your, your overall implementation plan and approach and budget and all that good stuff. So good stuff. Thank you for being here, Amanda and Kyler. As always, great to have you on the show. And I hope the, uh, the listeners here found that information as useful as I did. So um, thank you for being here today. We want to appreciate or want to thank everyone for being here today. Uh, thank you for listening in. Uh, new episodes every Wednesday. Uh, you'll find a new episode next Wednesday. So be sure to go, go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to view any episodes you may have missed in the past. You can also subscribe on various platforms by going to transformationgroundcontrol.com. That's where we aggregate all the different platforms into one website to make it easier to find our stuff. So be sure to go to transformationgroundcontrol.com. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Hope you have a great week. And we'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Take care. 